So here we are again, episode um, eleven. I don't know, like eleven. Or it's something. eleven, the big one one. Mm-hmm. So uh, we figured we ought to do something special this time around because uh, you know we did we got ten in the bag. We talked about it briefly on our video, but if you haven't watched the video, then we got a special, special treat. Uh, we have a guest. If you can believe that, we're popular enough that uh, somebody wanted to come on and be on the show. It's insanity. Actually, we're getting a lot of that, actually. A lot of people that we know and people that have a shared history with us are yeah. wanting to take part in the conversation. Yeah, they want to be cool. part of And uh, I've been invited to uh, another podcast uh, to be uh, on a guest. Really? Whose so, podcast? Uh, uh, Andy, my uh, my buddy, my brother-in-law. No kidding. That's his podcast. He wants me to be on. Yeah. So uh, this will be my last episode. I'll be uh, joining his podcast from here on out and uh, moving up to the big time. And uh, it's been uh, great working with you. Well, hell with you. Why isn't he asking me to come on, too? <laughs> I was wondering that myself. I hey, was who are you? What? What? What's going on? I had to say something because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, why are you getting all the special treatment at yeah. that podcast, but not Tom? What the fuck? I tell him, look, you want to have me on? It's gaming AM or nothing, bitch. <laughs> I'm serious. Fucking tell this guy. You want me on? You got to have Tom on, too. I wouldn't fucking leave you in. I wouldn't fucking leave you out. I'd be like, look, you want to have one half of gaming AM? You got to have the other half, too. It's bottom line. <laughs> or you can have Denny. <laughs> hey, Denny, you want to be on Andy's podcast? <laughs> fucking asshole. So uh, who are you, sir? And uh, why have you come to us? Uh, well, the random voice here is just jumping in. Uh, this is Mike Vallis. I have known Ray Price uh, back in the EGM days. Uh, long, where was it? Like 93, 91. 91, 92. Good God. I was there. Yeah. 91. So, yeah, it was back there. So, I worked at EGM from uh, 1991 to actually 2000. And, uh, was it not 2001? No, 2011? No, 2001. My God. So, that'll be 20 years. That's who a was, long time. Who was running EGM by the time when you left? Like, who was in charge of things over there? And I'm not talking about individuals, but like the company. Was it Ziff or was it? It was Will Stein okay. that was in charge of that. But Ziff Davis technically was still in charge of the, was there. But I believe they were just RA, that were just bought by uh, Will Stein at that point. Was uh was Ziff Davis the Sean Baby Dan Schuer, or was that after that? Uh, that was, uh, they... Uh, that Ziff Davis actually came before the Sean Baby okay, Danshu yes. era. That that kind of uh, that actually sort of kind of led to that era is actually my, been my experience over there. Mm-hmm. All right. So what happened was yeah, I remember the, the actual day that that actually happened was I actually remember I walked in because I was at Night Crew at that time. They nicknamed me Night Shift and all kinds of fun with there. So. What does EGM Night Crew do? I don't mean to derail your story, but now I'm curious about this. <laughs> You're like, wait, I've heard of a Night Crew here. What? <laughs> uh, believe it or not, the Night Crew consisted of um, me. <laughs> that's pretty much it though eventually a couple other people jumped on uh scott augustine did uh he jumped on with that but this was like uh egm2 eventually jumped on with that and uh john gurka you've probably heard many stories about him yes i have so sadly he is not with us but oh, uh he was that. a character he was nicknamed sasquatch for very good reason so was ironically he, was though he, was he her suit pretty hairy guy <laughs> not so much he was you know, he did have very long blonde hair but he was just large okay. and belligerent. All right. But I have actually had really good conversations with him at late at night too. But it's great because I can have these like great conversations like in heart and stuff, talking about his dad, his kids, stuff like that. And then when he goes, he goes on, then later on I'll hear him like talking like Mohane, talking about oh that effing N-word, freaking Jordy LaForge. Why the hell does he do that? Why they have him on there? I'm like, oh God. I'm like, 
<laughs> Sounds like a pleasant guy. Yeah, so he was a, he had many notorious known things for uh, biting controllers when he was very mad. He would sit there. We'd sit there. It was like something's wrong. Oh. And he would just grab the controller and just bite. And there were like tooth marks. I've in seen, there. Yeah, nice. I've seen throwing, but never bite. And you've probably heard the tale of the chairs too. So not that I should be saying anything because I'm no lightweight here. Uh, but he destroyed. Oh God, I forget what the tally was. At least like nine or ten chairs or something like that broke under him. That sounds like stuff a legend to me. Oh, he was he was quite legendary. But he actually went on to do some uh, many fun stuff too. Uh, well, before I, he passed away from a heart attack. And um, he was actually, no, you'll love this one. Uh, you do remember Scott Granke? Yeah. He actually went on to do uh, trauma picture films and stuff like that. Oh He's actually God. now a teacher. He actually got John Gurkha in many of his films <laughs> as well as the character. I often, like, I often laugh because, you know, obviously Scott Granke, great guy. He's definitely the Ed Wood of the era, I sometimes feel, that time. And uh, I often look at Gurkha thinking he's, oh, God, what's his name? The large guy from MST3 always made fun of him. TV's the... Frank? No, not TV's Frank. It was actually um He's bald... a large guy. Yeah, it was from the older movies, from, like, the Ed Wood era. Oh, okay. I... You know who I'm talking about. You know, I know who you're he's played about. by George Animal Steel in the Ed Wood movie. Yes. Um, God, what's his name? Uh, Tor something. Well, that Tor, Tor Johnson. Tor Johnson. That's Tor it. Johnson. That's why I said that was like his Tor Johnson. Yeah. That so. is some legit geek cred there, saying that you know who played Tor Johnson in the Ed Wood movie directed by the Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah. Tim Burton. Yes. That's that's some pretty awesome geek cred. I'll give you. You know what? So you, you sit there. You're giving me geek cred. You. I was listening to your podcast all week and. You were spitting things that I couldn't even figure out. Like, I didn't know. You were naming names of, of like, stuff I didn't know. So Shit. thank yeah. you for giving me that credit, but uh, don't trust me. There will be many things that you'll probably say there. I'm like, I don't know who that is. Well, before <laughs> we started recording this podcast, you were dropping some serious knowledge, and Ray even admitted that he learned things from you that he didn't even know. So Yeah, just uh, an hour ago, we were talking about uh, what what, what re- revelations did we have just a uh, short time ago. Oh, oh uh, Street Fighter Alpha 2 Strider in the background throwing a teddy bear is a tribute to the um is it the turbo it was the, it was it was originally the super graphics version yeah of there where the creator of strider kind of went little loopy you know after that he actually got committed so and that was kind oh, so of a the creator so who was working on it yeah okay. the super he was the original creator of strider went on he did the different versions was doing the super graphics version and then he, that just that just broke him. Okay, I misunderstood the story. I thought you said that uh, Hideo himself went crazy at the end of the game. You're talking about the developer. No, guy- the actual developer who okay. made the game. This is a real life thing. Okay, okay, okay. So Which is always one of the things where it's like, yeah, that's a funny old match, but it's like, no, it's not yeah, when you think about the, it. It makes the teddy bear even worse when <laughs> yeah. you really think about so, it. So, so Hiryu is, was still perfectly sane at the end of that game. It was yes. the crea- okay. God, I was about no, to create. Okay. No, no, it wasn't a story thing one of, of Hiryu. One of my video game heroes was about to be diminished <laughs> in my eyes. Like, I don't want. Hiryu is like a badass ninja. I don't want him to be I like know, a No, no, I would never do that. But his creator. A yeah. fragile man. Actually, I, I have I, never played Metroid Other M, but I heard the horror tales of what they did to Samus. Yeah. Uh, the whole argument was that what? Well, well, then they turned her into like this, like crying, like oh, you know, well, really she, sad stuff she like had, that. She very had, emotional, like kind of like a weefyish. Well, of. they were kind of trying to tell the story as an origin story of how she became who she is. She was part of a military group, and she was taking orders. She had like some daddy issues in the game or something, so like mm-hmm. she was much more sensitive. And honestly, I think that that's more of a cultural perception, like. In Japan, they were probably like, well, in Japan, when women are when yeah. women are turning into heroines, these are the things that they go through, and they have to kind of outgrow their, 
their their woman trappings to become independent and badass. And but I think there were also gameplay complaints about the game too. Like you know, she had all the weapons, but she couldn't use them until she received authority from her commander, who happened to be a man, who happened to remind her of ah. her father. So like, there were a lot of complaints about that stuff because people are like, well, Samus is the original badass female in video games, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I and every for, well, the other uh, thing is everybody had a vision of what their Samus was. Like my vision is just you know she's yeah. independent, she does her thing. So I could see that really clashing with me. Like, well, that's not the personality I envisioned her with. Well, actually, in many ways, I like I, cre- I it, would, it would almost like you would we would role play Samus well, to our own way. It's fascinating right. that you bring that up because there's a guy whose uh, videos I watch, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give him a free plug here, but he's a very well known uh, culture critic, and he has a lot of political views that I don't agree with, but I still subscribe because. He also says a lot of things that I find very interesting mm-hmm. and that I do like. And one of the things he said was, you know, why are people taking ownership of Samus's identity? Like Samus didn't really have an identity before Other M. Her identity was she was a woman in armor that killed monsters uh, <laughs> in an isolated environment on planets. Technically, we she just, didn't even have an identity or personality. Right. Well, we just automatically assume because she does this that she's just rugged hero warrior and, you know, is like emotionally stable and just like a complete badass. Like people made that assumption mm-hmm. but like when other m came out everyone saw it as this like sort of bastardization of what the core purpose of the character is and i i, I kind it, of uh... i kind of agree with that guy that like you know we didn't samus didn't have an identity mm-hmm. this gave her an identity you may not like it but at least it it gave her an identity it mm-hmm. kind of goes along with what i've always said my problem was with metal gear solid 4 i want to play as solid snake not the guy who like every five minutes has to stop and go oh my back <laughs> 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 You know, yeah, same thing yeah. with Samus. I don't need all this extra like backstory when I play Metroid. Sa- you know, just save it for another game. You know, right. other games can have backstory. It's okay, right. but when I play Metroid, it's like I just want to play Metroid. I mm-hmm. will defend Nintendo's attempt to bring Metroid into the modern era because that's what video games were becoming at that yep. time. They were becoming narrative driven. Mm-hmm. They were. Becoming- oh, I love the idea of having Metroid creating a story and a mythos around it. I thought that was actually kind of cool. Yeah, so. I, and I under- like. People complain that like Nintendo doesn't evolve, and then when they try to evolve, like the 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 You're um, doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly right. So it's like Nintendo's kind of trapped. You know, as much as I want to complain about the Wii, or as much as I want to complain about like how crazy popular Pokemon Go is, and it's not the game itself. <laughs> oh, we'll start on that soon. Yeah, we're gonna get on that. That's coming. <laughs> it's more about like the social media frenzy about it than mm-hmm. the game itself. But like, as much as like my Nintendo is the Nintendo where I plug a cartridge in and I play a game, mm-hmm. like. Whenever Nintendo tries to evolve what they're doing, there are a lot of people that can't stand it. So whenever they go in a direction with the Wii where they try to introduce something new, it's not to get me back on their side. It's because... They were trying for a whole new audience. Right. They either lost me or <laughs> they just never had me. And they're like, well, we're never going to make these people happy. So we, But we as a company have to try to succeed. So we need to do something. Well, that so, was... Correct me if I'm wrong. This My impression for the Wii when they first brought that out was their goal was to try and get a new generation because yeah. more games were trying to go more adult and stuff like that. They were like, okay, let's try for the new generation of kids, which I almost think in some ways they succeeded. Oh, well, I don't know... <laughs> to the, a degree until they stopped having like third-party licensies, bring out games, and well, the, the Wii became a doorstop. And Yeah, that, that's interesting <laughs> yeah. that you bring that up and I agree with all of that and the reason for that the reason for that I believe is because the hardware was very limiting the third party developers who Agreed. didn't who 100%. did not know how to a scale back their development to deal with the Wii or B how to use the 
how to how to utilize the unique control system. Absolutely agree. They were very used to just making, and I don't want to shit on this too much, but like Call of Duty. But let's put it out for PC, for PlayStation, and for Xbox. And we can't get this to work for the Wii. And we don't want to waste the time developing something that will work on the Wii. Mm-hmm. So like, And I think that third-party developers kind of put themselves in those boxes because AAA gaming is so expensive and they want they need a guaranteed return on the investment. They need to know what the numbers are going to be. So like yep. I think it's easy to like be angry at Nintendo for doing things a certain way, but like I think the people that do that they're not really understanding the limitations of the business that companies that develop software mm-hmm. have put themselves in. So like it's not Nintendo's fault that third-party developers didn't make games. Now, Nintendo probably could have helped them a little more and supported them a little more, but at the end of the day, they didn't really try to do anything innovative with the motion controls or the Wii U touch mm-hmm. screen or anything like that. Because I own a Wii U, and I'll tell you what, the three games I, had I a play... Fit. <laughs> the three games I play for the Wii U, I love them, mm-hmm. but... I, there's nothing else for me to do with the system except <laughs> virtual <probable>. console. <laughs> right. exactly. I have those games all already in one way or another. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, all right. That you drove to Japan to get. Right, exactly. Exactly. Drove to Japan. Mm-hmm. But got to get back to the EGM thing. Night crew. What did the night crew do? Well, and I guess let's, let's 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 dial this back. Let's start from the beginning. Okay. Um, first of all, so first the Earth cooled. Well, yes. <laughs> let's, then the dinosaurs. Then the dinosaurs. Came. Go past that. <laughs> A little bit past that. And then the, and then the Arabs came, and they bought J.C. Pennies. <laughs> uh, everybody that knows you, that I know, uh, anytime you're involved in a conversation or anytime anything comes up, it's always Vallis. Your name is Mike Vallis, <laughs> but I've never heard anybody call you Mike. Can you uh, that elaborate? Is actually on... my, that was my decision that I have people do okay. because it is a very simple one. There are a bajillion mics out there in this sure. world. Every place I would go to, there's a mic. If you go to any office, you go, I'll just go to any office and say, hey, Mike, it'll be purried up. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most popular names, exactly. So I actually tell people, call me Vallis. It's okay. much easier. Yeah. So that's where they're. But then we also got, eventually got uh, crazy nicknames. Mine was actually there was, because uh, <laughs> I think I got sick one time. Uh, it was like during Resident Evil, and maybe I shouldn't be describing this, but like, well, like I had a blood vessel burst in my eye, oh. so everybody called, started calling me M Virus based on M <laughs> M Bison, and then eventually I just became Virus. So yeah, what a virus. great, what a glorious nickname! I remember for that, virus, virus, and I remember, I believe it was, wasn't Steve Harris that coined uh, Mike Vallis three. Oh, he didn't coin it, but he did that uh, at the time. Um, the Tur- Turbo Graphics was out, and. Val, the game, there was actually the Valis series spelled differently, but right. pronounced the same. Right. It was V-A-L-I-S, I'm V-A-L-L-A-S. Um, but on the pagination, when we had everything there, Steve Harris would like play the fun there. It would be like, okay, you know, Martin, you're doing this, you know, Daniel, Daniel's doing this, this, and then it's like, Mike Valis 3, you're doing this. Yep. <laughs> I didn't even put the I-I-I right after yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I always remember the, the, the Mike Valis 3 thing. And I remember, uh, like, on my first day, you uh, you were there already before I was. And on my first day, just being, like, very, uh, like, giddy and childlike. And I, when I met you, uh, you know, this is Mike Vallis. And I was like, oh, you, 
you share a, a name with that Turbo Graphics game. That's cool, man. And you're like, okay, idiot. Yeah. No, see, the funny thing is, like, you talk like that, saying, thinking you talk like that. You talk exactly the same that like before. Yeah. That's why I was like always cool. So. Yeah. Yeah. I I just remember like being just a very uh, like giddy, oh you share your. Well, I remember, and this is one thing I should add to claim to claim to fame that I did. I could add to claim to fame. I'm the guy that introduced you to anime. That's right. With Ranma and uh, Project talk, Deco. Yeah. and I've talked about that before on the. Uh, on the you podcast. you've blown way beyond me, by the way. Oh, so you're the one. So, <laughs> I'm yeah. the one that started. Yeah. Gary, oh, shit! Stop throwing the stuff at me. All the listeners right now who were like, "Oh, he's going to have a guest on. This is going to be. They're going to. They're going to finally not talk about anime because I don't know. Because uh-uh. I, I get a lot uh-huh. of people saying, I, you know, I, I I'm lost when you guys start talking about anime. Well, too bad for you." Valis introduced me to anime. Here, here's so. a recommendation: if you're lost when we talk about anime, watch the fucking anime we recommend. Yeah. There you go. Hey, bitches, learn something. Yeah, give yeah, it a no. try. We don't talk about shit unless we either really like it or we really hate it. The hint is: watch the stuff we really like and avoid the stuff we really hate. Mm-hmm. You won't go wrong. Yeah, and then and then you'll be on track when we talk about this right. stuff. But, if uh, we tell you Dragon Ball is cool, watch some fucking Dragon Ball. Yeah. Don't be a don't be a dick and avoid it. It's good. It's fun. Just don't take it too seriously and just enjoy it. Yeah. Then you'll be on board. You can be part of the conversation. The jo- Who knows? Maybe someday you could be a guest star, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but the giant eyes and the screaming and the oh, I can't take it. I've heard that. There was actually this one girl that I did before. She actually, you know, it was, like, it was just getting an she, she was like all into like, you know, local bands, stuff like that. I'm like, okay, you're into sports. Mm, you know, I'm like, that's okay. That's cool. And I was telling her about that. I'm like, into, you know, I'm like into anime and stuff like that. Just like anime. I'm like, oh, it's the, uh, you know, animation. Is that the, is that the cartoon with the big eyes? Oh, I hate that. I'm yeah. like, done. Yeah, that's a. Deal oh, we're done here. That's a oh, deal breaker. Sports would be fine though, because on this podcast we talk about sports. Oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> or you could just say my boss did that. He was like, he came up to me. I forget what he was. He, he said he one of the two teams. I don't know Denver versus whoever, Chicago, whoever it is, whatever the teams are. I don't know what they are and whatever hockey. I don't know what I don't know what they are or what balls they use or I don't. <laughs> exactly. That's how I am too. He just looked at me. He's like, which one are you for? And I, I'm kidding. I just turned and looked at him. And went, Lol, sports. And I went back to work. <laughs> you got any balls down there? <laughs> Biggest pair you ever seen, Dingleberry? <laughs> now, I, I do. This is one of those fucked up things that I know you talked about, like knowledge that I have. Mm-hmm. And like, I know if you say the name of a sports team, I know what sport it's associated with. And I don't know how I know that. I am a fan of sports, but I'm not like a crazy super fan of sports. Mm-hmm. Like I don't paint my face blue. I don't go to a lot of live events. If I go to a live event, it's more because I'm going out to do something interesting with my wife, something different, something we don't normally do. We're going, we're, we're having the popcorn and we're watching the people play and we're having a good time. I do follow up my sports teams too, but by no means am I like a crazy sports guy. Well, like, it gives you the social advantage when you get in these situations and you'll identify with this, Mike, when I say say somebody starts a sport oh how about the, that you know whatever's going on in sports. denver how, what do you think denver's doing up to today today you know I, I you know i have no response whereas you Tom, totally shucked it in the five the fifth inning, whereas, no, uh, whereas, inning whereas, nobody talks about baseball at least i know that yeah but but tom <laughs> has the ability to be able to respond in these conversations when he you know <laughs> these small talk moments yeah i think I'm the lost. it crowd actually did a joke like that there was actually like have you ever seen the it crowd british show yeah oh yeah, yeah there yeah. was actually a scene where like uh, whoever oh, Moss. Forget that. Moss Moss has an app yeah. that gives him responses when people give him sports, sports questions. <laughs> he can quick type them into this app and it will say, did you see that ludicrous display last night? And then he 
types on the app. Oh, what was so and so thinking putting in that player at that point? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I um I do have You should write that. <laughs> I guess I guess I do have that quote unquote advantage. Um I'll tell you where it's been most helpful when I'm talking to important people in a company that I work for. Oh sure. Because if so, if you're in the bathroom, like when I used to work at the place where we used to work, mm-hmm. and the VP of the company walks in and says, uh, you know, how about the Bears? You know, like uh, uh, Jay Cutler really, you know, fucked it up when he threw that interception. Like, if I say to him, "Oh yeah, I, I don't really follow sports," like already, I might as well be slitting my wrist because this guy's gonna, <laughs> this guy in some small way is gonna form a perception of me that I'm not quote unquote with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if I know the sport. I can talk about it. And the thing is, knowing the sport is not the thing that's going to get me ahead. But being able to engage those Small people talk. and converse with them leaves an impression. Mm-hmm. Next I, time I walk by mm-hmm. that guy in the hallway, he's going to remember me. My version that I did, because I, there's no way I could, at least you could do small talk. I could not even do that about sports. Mine is what I, I will tell them straight up, you know, and I'll be honest, I'll be like, oh, and I actually did this with my boss before. Because he did that joke, he asked me about that. Um, I said to him that, like, yeah, I don't follow sports, but I did not go on to tell him. But the thing is, I have so many friends who are sports fans, and I keep offering them that, like, during the Super Bowl, you need me to grill for you. <laughs> because I don't care what's going on, and I love grilling for people. Right. You know, I would love to grill. Let me man the grill. Let you guys enjoy the game. I'll, I will fill you up with chicken wings in there or something. So I would tell a story like that. That, that would be my way of trying yeah, to do it. And, and I got one story, and that's about it. You can at least, you can at least keep up. Yeah, I've me. seen Facebook photos of you wearing, like, a... Like the apron, a, a cooking apron. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've seen many. I know that there's cooking things going on there. But uh, my spin on it is always, uh, oh man, did you see the game last night? I say, nah, but did you see Goku fuck up Frieza in that episode that was on last night? <laughs> I was about to just trail into a, a something similar to that because whereas I don't, and then like, they, you know what they always that's say? That's an EGF that, story. I could segue you. Too. Well, that's well, the, you know, their response to that is always. <laughs> they just stare at you. <laughs> now, what? Think about this though. How weird is it that we live in a culture where it's okay to walk into a bathroom and someone's there and you bring up sports and they just expect you to know what you're talking about? But if I was, if somebody was to walk into a bathroom and I was to say, "Hey, you know, did you see that newish? Did you see that new episode of Mobile Suit Gundam? You know, when Amuro does this?" <laughs> they'd be like, "What?" Like, Dude, I had that with something completely different. This is my introduction to this show. I get in the elevator, one of the, uh, the at, at at the condo at my condo where I live, and somebody uh, gets in the elevator there. We're riding up there. She goes. So, who do you think is going to make it off? Who do you think is going to get voted off the island? What? <laughs> it's like, you know, a survivor. Who's going to get voted off? What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I had no idea she had to explain to me what yeah. the show I'm like, what she, But she acted as if I would obviously know who it is. Right. Well, what because, that show was. <laughs> because in social circles, people just expect everyone yeah. to know what the, hot, what the hot thing is. Because... I don't want to sound too negative about it, but, you know, I can be a negative person sometimes. But I think that we have a very sheep mentality in this society where it's like, you know, it's if you don't conform to what everybody else's expectations are, what everybody else is involved in, then you're some kind of strange person. Mm-hmm. That's what- Especially in high school, a lot of people would feel like guilty if they're not part of that. That's why I hate the movie Grease. I often say that it's you know you know Andy Barron always joked about saying that it was like it was a movie about a woman who had to conform, who had to like throw out her personality to try and match somebody else's mm-hmm. so that she could be liked. And I'm like you know what I kind of agree with that. 
Now, it's been ages. Maybe I don't remember the ending or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's how I felt, you know, that because a lot of people feel guilty. I was like, oh, I'm not part of the social circle. You were talking about that in an earlier uh, podcast. And I, yeah, I completely agree with that. If you're starting to feel when people like the sports jocks probably always made fun of us, you know, because we like, you know, stupid stuff. And I feel weird, too, because when I was young, the two biggest things I was into, you know, in like third and fourth grade. Well, I'm not in third and fourth grade, but I was into anime and Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I was like a complete social outcast there. <laughs> now, if you go to like freaking Anime Central, yeah. there's people walking around with sonic screwdrivers and bow ties. And yeah. oh, well, I was born way too much. Yeah, and now we're the guys in there with their kids. I was into it before it was yeah. cool. Exactly. Uh, well, the, uh, the, what I was going to say about the nerd culture thing is that at work, I was not the type of person that like communicated my my fixations on to people. But if you walk by my desk, you saw my berserk wallpaper, you saw my Marvel superhero squad action mm-hmm. figures all over my desk. People knew that I was the nerd guy. And then when it started becoming popular, they all started coming to me and asking me <laughs> questions about it. Well, what's the difference between Iron Man in the comic book and Iron Man in the movie? And the first thing I always said was, well, I like the Iron Man in the comic book, but mm. of course I like Robert Downey Jr. I think he's great as Iron Man. I don't, it's not a complaint, but like, you know, my um, only experience with Iron Man, believe it or not, is actually – I was actually – it's funny. With comics, Transformers, and um, guns, my knowledge of that is all peripheral hmm. from everybody else I know. Hmm. So, But comics, I actually got a little bit into it. I never really collected them, so I don't know the difference. What is the difference between uh, Iron Man in the comic versus uh, the movie? I didn't know there was well, one. if I have to say what the difference is, I would say that the movies captured the basic spirit of the character – properly sort of this like confident mm-hmm. um, yeah people always told me my friend who that I goes who's which by the way uh Andy's my friend Carl is now my friend Carl mm-hmm. and I have that now situation where I have to exp- I constantly say to friends my friend Carl and they're actually saying to me oh god you know it's like you'll stop calling him my friend Carl so yeah. it's actually now caught on with that yeah he's actually a comic guy and he was telling me like all that like that like Robert, that Robert Downey Jr. played the perfect um I can't believe I forgot his name. Tony Stark. Tony Stark, yeah. Um, I, I would not agree with that completely. Uh, I would say that the Tony Stark in the comics um, was less irascible, mm-hmm. less irritating. I feel like Robert Downey Jr., this is not going to be 100% accurate, but he, had a, he has a tendency to quip a lot more than Tony Stark in the comic book did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Tony Stark in the comic book was confident, but he was confident in the way that, like, James Bond is confident. Mm. Um, he can trade barbs, but he doesn't really trade barbs. Like, mm-hmm. the Tony Stark in, in the movies is very much... Uh, he's It's almost a comedic presentation. Like, he's got to be that funny guy. Like, Tony Snark. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Or Tony Stank. But, uh, yes, but this is Tony the, Stank. But, but in the comic books... He wasn't the guy that he wasn't. He think about how Bruce Wayne is in the comics. Mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne, not Batman, not the serious Batman. Bruce Wayne, smiling, playboy, gallivanting. But Bruce Wayne is not the kind of guy that like he doesn't trade barbs and insult people. He's just like, well, you know, that's great that you're making fun of me. I'm gonna get in my Lamborghini, mom, with my three hot bitches and go off and fuck them all. Like that's <laughs> that's how Bruce Wayne is, you know. Like that's what Tony Stark was like. He'd have a fucking drink, he'd jump in his car, and he'd drive off with his hot woman. You know, it's like I don't need to, I don't need to fight back with you in public. I'm Tony fucking Stark. <laughs> you know, like he was cool as the other side of the pillow. Whereas okay. in the movie, it's like. 
if Tony Stark doesn't have funny things to say, then all he is is he's a guilt-ridden um, – he's a guilt-ridden, nerve-wracked individual. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that to me is the difference between the two. Tony Stark in the comic was not as much of a jokester until mm-hmm. the movies. Now that the yeah, movies have come that. along – He's become more of a jokester and more of a quipster. Mm-hmm. And I already feel like we have that with Spider-Man. We have that with Deadpool. I Definitely really have f- that with Deadpool. As a matter of fact, when I saw Deadpool, that was the first thing I said. It's like, too bad we can't see. I want to see Deadpool equip. I have a quip off with Tony Stark. <laughs> well, <laughs> hold on, because now Marvel and Fox are working together on an X-Men TV show, mm-hmm. which could be the first step towards bridging the gap between the Acrimony and those two companies. Yeah. Now, what I find interesting is that I would hope Fox would give creative control of the Fantastic Four back to Marvel because that is a very good super team, and they've just never been handled properly. They I were, didn't even bother seeing the last one. I didn't either. There were way no. too many changes made to it. Well, not only it was the was changes, it was just, dark. I also thought it was just way too early because we just had one like a couple of years prior. And so. I, I, I feel <sighs> like it was yeah. way too dark. It looked way too douchey serious. It, that's not – the Fantastic Why is everybody Four, a kid? The, what? Why is everybody a kid in these shows now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because they want they think that younger being, audience. Well, here's the reason why: because young adult fiction is being adapted heavily to movies now. Mm-hmm. Things like Hunger Games, Divergent, those things are really popular. Young adult fiction is extremely popular right now, and adapting it over, you know, you want to try to have that crossover appeal. Well, if we I make this that. like a young adult thing, we have to have younger people as mm-hmm. the main characters, um, but. I feel it was just too dark. Now the Fantastic Four can be dark, but they're really a, they're a family and they're a team of explorers. So I'm hoping that they give control back to Marvel. The other reason I want them to give control back to Marvel is because Fox cannot do Doctor Doom to save their asses, and <laughs> Doctor Doom is the most he's the most typical archetypal villain there ever was. He they kind they constantly try to change him to be like this weird character of this type or right. something like they that. Don't, they don't need Heaven to forbid he should wear a proper mask. They they don't have to have him be threatening, or they don't have to have him be complicated. Just have him be doom. That's mm-hmm. all he needs to be. Yeah. And then if you want to tell his backstory later, tell his backstory later. But for at the start, he just needs to be the menacing supervillain in the armor. That That's what I've been saying, you know. I've been actually, it almost goes back to like you were talking about Plinkett reviews and stuff like that, mm. where it's like, how about we have a decent bad guy? You know, <laughs> that's one of my favorite things. And I say that too, you know, all, a lot of villains, you know, they're always like trying to make them like these complicated characters. You know, we want to make them realistic and stuff like that. It's like, I am longing for the days where I just want a villain dressed in black with a goatee shouting, the universe will be mine. Yeah. Those are my favorite. They're fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think that a movie that relies on an interesting villain. Look at Loki. Yeah. Look at the transition. They tried to make him this like evil little guy in Thor, and it's kind of like. Uh, but then when they brought him into Avengers, they cooled him down a little bit. He still has that story, but they made him black. He had the good, the condescending sort of thing looking mm-hmm. down there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he is in the comics, but in the movie, I like that. They're like that's a villain. Well, that's what I want—a fun villain, right. a Loki, fun villain who's fun to hate. Loki mm-hmm. is inspired, of course, you know, by Norse mythology, and I am a Norse what? myth. No. <laughs> I'm a Norse <laughs> mythology buff. And in Norse mythology, Loki is not strictly a villain. Yeah, he's, he's, he's antagonistic. Mm-hmm. He likes to fuck around with the other gods. He especially likes fucking around with Thor. Mm-hmm. But he has a lot of bitterness and resentment because of the circumstances of his life. So in the context of the Thor movie, how they presented him in the Thor movie, I think that they handled the character properly in the context of what that character is in that Norse pantheon. Mm-hmm. But in the Avengers, 
I like the fact that they brought him over to the Avengers and they made him the first Avengers villain because in the comic, Thor is the f- or Loki is the first Avengers villain. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, he's the he's their first antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, Did not know that. Yeah, so I like that. If you read Avengers issue number one, Loki's the first bad guy. I won't. Um, of course not. Hey, Goku's in it. Will you read it now? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I just I like. I, it's like I said. If you need the, if the villain has to be interesting to make the movie engaging, something's not right. Something's missing. Mm-hmm. I think the heroes can be just as compelling and interesting as the villains. Very true. And that the is the hero's journey true. point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Captain America movies do a good job of establishing Steve is vastly more interesting than the people that he's fighting, except for mm-hmm. Civil War, where you have two sides, mm-hmm. both with complex issues. You know, but. Um, you know, it's, Are you it's, saying that Ed Skull is not interesting? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's very, I think he's very basic, but he's what Cap needed at the time. Right. So anyway, um, he's a lame you villain. still haven't explained Night oh, Crew. Oh, Night Crew. Is that there's really not much? You see, we, 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 you're saying like, explain Night Crew, explain Night Crew. This it's is really happens. not that exciting. I actually kind of created Night Crew, and all it was was basically I did my job stuff at night. Uh, which was just doing the pages and that, but I would also man the out um, where we would um, print out uh, image uh, pages and stuff on the Linotronic. You know, I would make three improves of stuff tell that needs to be what there. That is. No, what's Linotronic? Oh, that's right, the Linotronics and stuff like that. What we did, uh, we would is the big transition because we you know we have this thing called print. That was something that we don't really have nowadays. So. I barely remember it. I know, barely, exactly. <laughs> so, and what we had, we, first we had the 3M. When we would, uh, in the magazine, when we make a page, we would make a proof of it. And that would be like, it would actually be gone. It's like really nice, glossy thing, and we can mark it up saying it's like this, that, and the other thing. And then we have this big device at the end called the Linotronic, which would actually uh, translate uh, the images, uh, the, the pages, which we did in like Work Express and stuff, into film. And then we would have with a film, we would take a big caster of film, and we would run that over to the printer. Mm-hmm. We'd have a courier that would come pick that up at night. So, so this way f- we allowed us to do a 24-hour process of constantly putting out pages as opposed to actually just during the day. So this film that you sent off via courier is what would then get turned into the printed magazine. Exactly. Okay. So we, that, and, Yeah, uh, it's not very exciting in that. As a so. side note, the Linotronic printer, uh, it was nearly impossible to get a page to go through it. Oh, there's all kinds of errors and stuff like that. People are like rotating things in Quark and stuff like that. Use type styler and have type yeah, style. If you remember that one, there's like on there's like a thousand freaking little vector things going in there, trying to make trying to make this like ancient dinosaur of a box trying to like print out something. So depending like that. on how you constructed the page, that would determine the ease of output. So if you put a lot of D- graphics, yeah, like, high resolution stuff. Yeah. That like, you would, you, we would, I would tell people try to knock it to three hundred. No, they'll make it three hundred DPI, but then they'll shrink it down to ten percent in Quark, which makes it like output at like twelve thousand DPI. So and so it's like it's like it's going to go to these images. It gets to the icon for like a half hour. So to put it in layman's <laughs> terms, the prettier and better the page looks, the less chance it's going to print out. <laughs> let me ask a question Technically, about yes. This. But if you're clever, you could do it right. right. So, right. so let we me used ask... to dread, on a side note, just for for comic things with that, um, Ken Williams, we used to dread his pages because he actually was a guy who knew, he was learning all kinds of fo- uh, Photoshop stuff. So I'm sure your audience has probably heard Ken Williams, Sushi X, such sure. and such. Sure. He used to, when, he used to, when we get the Ken stuff, we're like, oh, shit. Oh, God, here we go. We're going to spend all night giving us a phone number because we're going to call him yeah. and say something there. Because he would try the, like, the new layer effects, like, you know, shadow effects on everything. Like, what the hell did you do 
this for? You'd always try the experimental stuff. Yeah, that's great, but we can't print any of this shit out. <laughs> exactly. So let me ask a technical question about this right. process. So this, what is it called? Lina, Lina, Linotronic. This Linotronic device. Do you think that based on what came after that in terms of print technology, were there any advantages to using the Linotronic? Did the Linotronic do anything that helped oh, the printing us. process? Oh, for us, it was huge. Originally, we, this was um, – actually, I could explain this because uh, we, I was there – and this probably right around the time because you were there before we got the Linos. Uh, no, we, we had used one. To, did we have we one had at that one. time? Yeah. Okay. We had, I was there when we got the Linotronics. We just call them nicknamed Lino. Um, the whole reason we got that was originally we would actually have to send the, I believe we had to send the optical discs out hmm. to the place and they had to print at the print house and they had to actually process and create the plates from there. This is something we call like direct to plate, um, where we would actually be able to create the film in house and just send the film. Right. It was a huge cost saver for us right. when we got those. So yeah, it, it was a big. Tra- it was I a remember big deal. Uh, there there being a big deal about like uh, going from three to two staples in the in the magazine, just something that simple, and like Steve saying how much money that saved. Yeah, you know, if we only use two staples, it's like it's just a staple. Oh, we had a huge dip in paper quality a lot of times for that too. We had like they actually like warned us, yeah, your whites are going to be ivory one time because it was like so bad. It's like when we were getting those four hundred page ones, and it's like this is stuff that's like toilet paper. Oh, yeah. In terms of the no final presentation and... of the printed page, though, did the line did the linos like do anything that looked better than any technology that came after that? Would you say? Like no, because I've heard. Oh, okay. Interesting. Oh well, it's well. The only thing I would say that if if well, then really because I was going to say once it, once it went directly digital when we started doing the PDF workflow, um, yeah, I said there really wasn't much of there because I would say with the film versus a direct digital, direct digital would go pixel for pixel versus film, which would be almost like an analog. We would have to line right. up the plates and stuff like that. So sometimes you would have like the off colors and stuff like that. It still does happen with the uh, digital. But not nearly as much yeah. direct to play. Because I've I've heard that there are in a lot of cases there are older techniques like um what uh, when you listen in 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 not related fields but in other media like say records mm-hmm. I've heard that in some ways playing music on records is actually a better representation of you were talking about that yeah, yeah one of your so like, yeah. you see that's what I'm talking about that's right. kind of the thing I'm trying to find out. like you know older if there is I wouldn't be aware okay. of a of a of a moment there is not saying that there isn't one right. I'm just not aware of one in my personal experience okay. where that would be a case unless somebody is like making some Trying to think of a context, I have not, not to my knowledge. Okay, it's but you do. What, about you, it sounds like you understand the question yes. that I'm asking, right? Yeah, like if there's an actual thing, like if somebody has an old school picture, can they use it as opposed to say a digital one? Can, is it better to scan is it? There's something go film better versus about digital. It. Yeah, yeah, so. not that I know of. But then again, I'll admit I never really looked. <laughs> so it was not print. Was one of those. I was one of those people. It's like, oh, thank God, digital. Yeah, really. <laughs> right. You know, we don't have to do the film anymore. I was one of those jumping on there. But there could be actually a, uh, a nostalgia that there is something there. There could be. I, I want to look into that now. I never thought of that yeah. idea that there might be something to plan. I don't think about so, that. So EGM, uh, 90, 90? Is that- I, 91 was when I started. 91. Yeah. Junior? Junior in high school? Or I was senior? a junior in high school. That's crazy. Yeah, it was in my middle of the junior year of high school. So. Yeah. 
So I know how, did, uh, how did school work with that? <laughs> yeah, school was interesting. Yeah, that kind of suffered a little bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, that wasn't there. But it doesn't that's, matter because you work at EGM. That's kind of how I felt. Yeah, that's uh, certainly how I felt. I was like, I don't, I don't even need to finish high school with my. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell my story that I think I told you before. With that, um, I did. I only found this out later. Well, one day I was just sitting there. I was when I was on night. Steve Harris comes up. He's like, "Oh, how do you like it here?" You know, I'm like, "I love it." You know, it's like this is great here. It's like, would you rather be in school or doing something like that? And like, well, I'm like, this to me, this is a college education right here. I'm automatically getting, I'm like learning stuff by hand and you know whatnot. I'm getting my college education right in right in the middle of high school. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I could decide they see that. Good point. Walks up. I found out later, and like I didn't I thought it was an odd conversation that he said. Um, my mother called Steve Harris <laughs> complaining <laughs> exactly <laughs> she called complaining saying like my Michael DeGode was in high school he's got to make certain everything's going there you can't have him working late hours and stuff like that and that's when I realized why he was asking me I found that out years later my mother told me that yeah. so based on like, everything you, you guys have told me about Steve Harris I can't imagine he would even care that your mom called <laughs> unless God. it was for business reasons like he could get in trouble. Or my something. mother was not like that. Yeah. <laughs> my mother, my mother wouldn't know the first thing about suing anybody. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you like it here? You like it? Okay. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, it's too bad it's your last day. <laughs> <laughs> there, there have been cases like that. There was one guy. He was upset about something. Like he lost something on his desk or something like that. And he's just like, he just picks up the phone and he's just like, you know, he goes on the intercom. He's like, you know, whoever took my stapler or whatever it was, you know, you can go to rotten nope. hell. Clip. <laughs> <laughs> and he clocks it. And then, like, five seconds later, you hear, doot, doot, Steve Harris, whoever made the last page, please come to the front desk to pick up your last paycheck. <laughs> Click. <laughs> That's the EGM way. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you knew Steve better than I did. Um, oh, God. Well, I, I actually really got to know Steve because he actually jumped on nights a lot, yeah. which was terrifying for and me. And gave out $500 checks. Did as he? I recall. Wait, who? Yeah. Remember? Didn't give them to me. Well, yeah, that's that was the whole problem. <laughs> he he gave them to the people who were there that night. Remember that story? You don't remember this? No, go ahead. Maybe remind and refresh. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. He came in one night and uh and was like uh, he gave five gave uh, five hundred dollar bills to everyone in attendance. I don't remember. Was I there? And that uh, you must not have been if you don't. Remember. I would have remembered that. I, I, I would hope I would remember getting but a free five hundred dollar bill. We come into the we're, uh, a bunch of people came in the next day and found out that hey, Steve gave us all five hundred dollar cash. Uh, God, son of a bitch, I'm calling right now. Where's <laughs> Where's ours? You know, and it was a that was a big stink. You know, uh, and I want to say it was uh, Terry Trickman that uh, called him on it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he called him on it, and uh, then everybody got cut checks with tax taken out oh <laughs> yeah so. so more like 400 dollar checks yeah so 350 yeah, checks. yeah about three, uh, 300 some odd yeah, yeah. It was, it was, uh, no i actually don't remember this at all i would have yeah. totally remembered this yeah it's a weird thing that happened i we'll have to ask uh, trick man about it but yeah i think that's i know that happened i don't know if it was terry specifically that, that mm-hmm. uh, took him to task on it but uh yeah, libeling yeah libeling's fun <laughs> Uh, it's dangerous, but it's like walking through a minefield. You get to the other side, and if you survive, you, you, it's great. I, Speaking I, of libeling, I know you were trying to guide us to this one here before. The Street Fighter story. Which uh, which one? Yeah, that's true. There's quite always been quite a few. The one I was talking about, the press, the, the, the thing sent to Ed by Capcom. Yes, please tell Tom that story. Uh, we, I was going to save this for you. So, I was talking to Ray earlier. He didn't know about this either. He just found this out today. 
um, there was a time, you know, everybody was like, you know, a lot of people were, uh, back then were shocked that like Street Fighter 2 made it out completely, very little changes, just stuff in the background, you know, a lot of the tropes of their blood and stuff like that was kept in. Well, Funny thing is, a lot of people talking about when it came out in America. The Super Nintendo. Oh, for SNES. SNES. Okay, so because as we know, a lot of games that came out for SNES, like Mortal Kombat, for instance, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of point, and that will bring up a point why Mortal Kombat got changed and not and not Street Fighter. Okay, but Capcom's own Final Fight. And Final Fight. We all remember Poison became Axel. Axel. No, no, not Axel. Excel and Slash were the two dudes in the leather yeah, that could yeah, block yeah, yeah. everything. But, but Street Fighter 2... Which, by the way, for the record, I wanted to say, Poison is a girl. Okay. Poison is a girl. Everything else was retconned. <laughs> That's my sense. I, and I, and I, the only thing, I, my, my argument based on this is, I do not believe in 1989 that people, that the guy, that, that's in the fledgling company that is Capcom, with the, the designers of that game, 1989, with however many people were building an arcade game with Characters ripped off from the American WWF gave a damn whether something was transgender or not. Well, I me, don't believe that. Let me, let me, we talked about this before. Let me go ahead and add That's why I was bringing up. Because you said there was some have, book, wasn't there? there? No. Here, let me go ahead and explain this. Let, okay. me go, let me go ahead and give you context for this and why, in fact, canonically, Poison is transgender. Oh, okay. Okay. So I have been in, involved in many a, uh, <laughs> a forum conversation, forum uh website conversation about this my stance was always very much like yours i think that poison the official release of poison was that she was a woman but here's the thing when the character was designed in the production art the person that drew the character wrote a little note in kana on the side that said new half Mm -hmm. Ah, i remember hearing that yes on your podcast a new half is is a person that is I don't know the exact of it, but so this was a, the production art of 1989. Yeah, the production art okay. before the game came out. It's it was written in Kana on the side of the characters, and it said "New Half," which is it's some approximation of like they're in the course of getting mm-hmm. a sex change. Oh, it's like One Piece and New Kama. If any of you watch One Piece, I have not gotten that far in One Piece. I, I have the manga, and what I've read like the first 14 mm-hmm. volumes of it, and I really like it a lot, but. There's a lot of manga for One Piece. So. Huge things. So yeah. it's like an R2. So, <laughs> I stooped some guys with so, anime on their so any, uh, anime. So, so, but but I felt the same way. That oh, it's this is a girl. This is made up crap from the internet or from somewhere. But we, See, now yeah, I can we buy that then. So yeah. there, it's a so, Capcom production. But it, production art is not the finished product. It's mm-hmm. simply in the staging It's in the staging process of coming to the final. Production art is often modified. Production art doesn't always. That's the get purpose used. of production I've art. Seen, I've seen um, Street Fighter Four extra costumes of Guy where he's dressed like Strider Hiryu in one of the extra costumes. <laughs> that's production art. They mm-hmm. never used it. So that's obviously not an official costume. You know so why th- they didn't use it? Because when they went to print it out, the lino bombed. Probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they, Capcom never had a stance on it, but mm-hmm. this production art scan was floating around the internet fucking forever so and so that's what started i always was under the impression it was the whole super nintendo changeover well that they did that that started it so what ended up happening after that was when they were going to release the game on the super nintendo i don't think that final i don't think that capcom ever had any intention of poison being a transgender character Mm -hmm. that was just some production art that the artist wrote gotcha 
I think that their intention was she's a girl. Obviously, she's a girl. She's a female. Why would anyone think she's anything different? Mm -hmm. Transgender characters weren't appearing in video games at the time, Mm -hmm. and nobody would think to question it. It's a girl. You know, that's 1989. But when they released... This this is the development staff that, like, ripped off Jesse Ventura and Andre the Giant. Right. (laughs) So when they they released the game in America, there were concerns about, you know, we don't want to have these characters beating up women, so we're going to change the the sprites for Axel and uh, Poison and Roxy into these other two characters. Mm -hmm. I wish Sid and something are their names. Sid and something else. Mm -hmm. So, But that was a decree by Nintendo. Yeah. Which was getting back to the whole story that I was going to say about Street right. Fighter. So then what ends up happening is, of course, this conversation that, you know, you know, well, clearly it was a woman because why would Capcom have changed it if it wasn't a woman? And, uh, of course, it starts going back and forth. Capcom gets noncommittal. They, like, they don't answer the question fucking forever. Like, forever and ever and ever and ever. They don't. Like, anytime they're asked, they're like, oh, well, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they kind of feed into it for reasons I don't know, <laughs> rather than taking a stance on it. I know that Yoshinori Free Ono. Hype. <laughs> yeah, right. Yoshinori Ono, at one point, when he was developing her for um, Street Fighter Cross Tekken, he had said, in my mind, Poison has always been a woman. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the producer of Street Fighter. So clearly, that's the canonical mm-hmm. version of events. Yeah. Well, then the game comes out and. If you have like um, Cody's dialogue or poison, like one of the one of the um, the flavor text for one of the victory screens is, it's like she's not what she appears to be. Like oh, the hint God. is that <laughs> they're dropping this. They're dropping the hint. <laughs> she's a guy, you mm-hmm. know, or you know, she's formerly a guy, a new half. It's like you know, it's somebody that identifies as a woman. Mm-hmm. And now feeding Cap- the rumor. Yes, now all the official character guides that have come out and all of the material that has come out since then has confirmed that she is in fact a transgender character. Mm-hmm. So that's Capcom's official stance on the subject. So, but yeah, like if you go you back what, to the, you want to know what my stance is? Just some character that you punch, yeah. <laughs> or you my, punch with, yeah. yeah. Or my, actually, in your case, yeah. whip with. In, in the well, I, I'm talking in the context of final fight. It's just yeah. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> all this over that over a sprite over yeah. a sprite you punch to get like just to advance in there so but that's, but that's which there's plenty of other things to make fun of uh one of the things i always made fun Hold of in final fight was uh, the epileptic dog but go ahead <laughs> don't lose the street fighter story oh yes we'll start with the street fighter story so street fighter fans will find this one interesting um a lot of people do not realize it but nintendo tried to get street fighter 2 changed when it came to america a lot of things were changed Capcom sent us a sheet of paper of all of the changes, and they wanted us to print it if Nintendo wasn't going to cooperate with them. What The changes, I only remember a handful of them, but it was basic things like removal of blood, you can't vo- no characters could vomit, uh, Vega was going to lose his claw, and like white leggings on Chun-Li. They, speci- they actually specified white leggings. On Chun Li, and uh, they were pissed. There was a whole stream of them in there, which and is weird because, like, I thought Chun Li kind of wore like sort of darker stockings. Like all the character designs for her now, it was a wearing, flesh tone. Yeah, it was Just, a flesh tone, but it's like now, now you see her. It's like a very dark stocking. Though. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I always on. felt it was like kind of like a nylon or something. Yeah, that like a wearing. nylon or something. That's kind of what I always saw it as. Too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, continue. So well, anyways, what happened was they uh, Nintendo uh, Capcom knew that this was not going to fly of America. So they contacted Capcom of Japan and told him that this is going to be a big problem here. 
can you do something about this? Because Nintendo wants to change this. Nintendo of America wants to change this. So Capcom of Japan contacts Nintendo of Japan, tells them, don't change this. Because this is an issue there. Nintendo of Japan came to Nintendo of America and said, don't. Mm-hmm. And boom, that's what happened. So only the background stuff, like, you know, the showgirls and uh, Balrog stage was gone. Uh, you know, the guy in the background with Ken's stage in the boat that got shifted to whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, but just the the power of EGM at that time, like yeah, Cap- they were they were threatening Capcom, if if they didn't do that, they were they wanted us to go to print with that. Yeah, for Capcom to say, well, we want to ensure that this happens, that things go our way. So we're going to put this. Basically, it's like a threat letter mm-hmm. to Nintendo by them sending that to you, saying, and and we also sent this to EGM, by the way. Yep. So they're going to print this if you guys don't you know, yeah. go along with it. That's I, something. I can imagine that Nintendo riding so high in the day, they were the kings. Mm-hmm. Oh, you they, could, they you, you could not question them. No, well, I mean, you could you could say that Sega tried to compete with them, but Nintendo was always pretty much the king of the home Very console. Very much so. And Nintendo of America specifically was, well, Nintendo in general is very thorny. And I don't, I honestly don't blame them for protecting their, their company. But yeah, they were very, very, they were very, very stingy, especially with the proprietary shit. I just watched a video about the history of the Nintendo, um, the disc system. Oh, sure. And like. The PlayStation? Huh? No, the, uh, the, the old, old disc system. The old disc okay. system. Where oh, the Famicom one. Yeah, the Famicom disc system. Okay. And what a fascinating piece of equipment. But yeah. apparently all the, all, all the stuff in it's proprietary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Made it very difficult to maintain. And they had these like very. Oh, that's Nintendo's mo. Yeah. Anything that uh, just from working on the repros and stuff, I can tell you that like everything Sega uses is all off-the-shelf parts. You can get them at any electronic store to this day. It's all stuff that's out there. Anything by Nintendo is no one else has. Right. It. We it's were visiting theirs. a uh, guy over in. Um, he was at this other uh, game studio who just happened to be below us. Mm. So that one, mm-hmm. uh, Black Pearl Software, yeah. uh, they have to be. Below Can you tell that. him a little bit about that? Tell uh, listeners about that. That'd be an interesting story. That uh, I don't know how much I could say, but basically, it was just a it was a game studio that was uh, below EGM that just happened to be below EGM that happened to also be owned by Steve Harris. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they make any games? Um, oh God, there was one uh, that they did, headphone jack, something like that. It was a rotating one. It was actually pretty good. Okay. I forget what it was, something, something, headphone jack. But one of the fun parts I liked was they actually brought a lot of people from Atari over, and uh, one of the people who was uh, working there was the actor who played as Kano from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so I got to, like, meet Kano. It's, it, it, it's great, but it's sad at the same time because I'm, like, I'm taller than him. <laughs> it's, like, so wrong. <laughs> like, I could beat up Kano. This is wrong. But he was a cool guy. Anyways, uh, we were there, I was there one night, and he was talking. This is when the PlayStation came out, and they were working on um, a motocross game. I forget which one they did. I think it was their last game that they did. Hmm. Um, if it was going to be for PlayStation. And he was showing me. He's like, let me show you the Super Nintendo development system. And it was this tower like this big. <laughs> Big gray thing. By the way, when he says tower this big, he's basically holding it up like four. He's oh, that's a good point. Like four and a half feet off the ground. It is like four and a half. It's it's not like a normal PC tower. This thing was like big. It's like one of those like it's almost like a space heater type thing. Mm -hmm. Imagine having one of those now, man. (laughs) It would be ridiculous. Well, anyways, he's like, here it is. This is this is the Nintendo system. We had to get this, you know, several thousand dollars. Let me show you the PlayStation development system. Goes to his PC, pulls off the case, uh, flips two switch, 
pulls out a tiny card. Here it is. <laughs> this is the PlayStation development kit. Yeah. Boom. Right in. <laughs> yep. That's Nintendo. That's nuts. And that's and I think this, it was all it was a whole culmination of that is why they lost in the uh, when they brought their N sixty four, just wanting to stick to cartridges and all of that. So you know, and I don't necessarily think that sticking with cartridges was was, was automatically a bad idea. It did limit what they were able to do, especially when those so many companies were already going to optical media for their games and stuff like that. Um, but. When final, I I would say to me the turning point for Sony was Final Fantasy VII when that yes. when that game came out. I completely agree. When that game came out, yeah. I mean Resident Evil came out the previous year, and that was a revelation. But I don't think it was necessarily a big hit at that time. It was still a niche thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. until Resident Evil Two came out that really that franchise exploded. Mm-hmm. But um, when Final Fantasy VII came out, that was the turning point for Sony. That was when everyone looked at Agreed. what Nintendo was doing, and they were like. Oh, they're going to be limited by what they can do. Because, well, that's what that's why Square moved over. Right, they were they originally want, yeah. doing Final Fantasy VII on the N sixty four. There was actually concept art and stuff screens right. of like little tiny chibi characters, and they showed. Um, you know, I think it was. Um, oh, I forget which one of the Final Fantasy beasts is one of the more classic ones. They showed a rendering of that that this might be what the N sixty four has, yeah. and that's all we saw of it. And we we're like, what's happening? And then suddenly they came out as like one of the Famitsu or something like that. There was like a four page article on like Final and Fa- Final Fantasy seven. We're like, oh my god, it's get- wait, PlayStation. Yep. <laughs> and it was because Sakaguchi and, and Square they wanted to they wanted to use they wanted to ha- expand the uh, the music bed and they wanted to um, do cutscenes and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they wanted to introduce more different types of gameplay, um, that kind of thing. That's why they moved over. And that, that was the turning point. That was when people realized the limitations of cartridge-based systems. But if you look at the N64's library, in all honesty, there's a number of really good titles for that, for that game. And, and arguably, arguably, the two best Zelda games that ever came out. Mm. Are on the N sixty four. My favorite still linked to the past, yeah, but I reckon I know so many people who love you know um, Ocarina, Ocarina, yeah, and like, Ocarina, and Link to the Past are the two that typically battle in mm-hmm. the fans' hearts for like mm-hmm. which one's the best one. I actually There's, went out to Nintendo when we did the strategy guide for that. We actually flew out to Nintendo and did the strategy guide at Nintendo for Ocarina of Time. Oh, I was wow. there with Andy Barron. That's nice. cool for like several days. It was a. Uh, <laughs> But that that's impressive for that console to host what is arguably what are arguably the two best two best Zelda games. Yeah. Arguably. Arguably. I'm not saying that they are. How t- mad does Nintendo have to be that their C D ROM system became like kind of their downfall for that mm-hmm. generation, you know? I mean, it's just crazy. Exactly. Oh, you're talk, are you talking about the, uh, the, the PlayStation? The Super, oh, the the Super PlayStation. Nintendo CD-ROM, which eventually became the right. Sony PlayStation. Right. Yeah. right. And then, and then which the is I actually it's actually it's rather ironic considering the fact how the NES started because the NES started originally with Nintendo courting Atari. Yeah. yeah. And wanting them to distribute, and Atari was like, no, 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 because they're you know they're experienced. So it's it's almost poetic. I find that almost poetic justice. Well, it is po- yeah. it is poetic justice because like Sony was all set. To like debut this as like a disc add-on system or the next yeah. Nintendo, and then at the CES in Chicago, it's like Nintendo comes out and they're like, "Hey, here's our new CD system. And it's the CDI. Mm-hmm. This is what we're doing now." And Sony's like, "Wait a second, we didn't even know they learned about it at that CES with everyone else." <laughs> right. I mean, unfortunately, Nintendo's hubris got the better of them, and it happens to every game company. Every console manufacturer goes through a period where they just have hubris. PlayStation Three. 
<laughs> well, that was Sony's downfall. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, the hardware in the PlayStation 3 in terms I'm of- a Sony fanboy. I totally agree. I yeah. could not defend that. The hardware, like on paper, is fucking awesome, but it was prohibitively expensive, and that was their downfall. Mm-hmm. Um X, Microsoft had the Xbox One. That's, yeah, they, they actually reversed with Sony. Yeah. Sony, when they, they learned their lesson, and they said, okay, we're gonna we're asking developers what do they want. Microsoft, they did exactly what Sony said. We're going to do an all-in-one console system with entertainment and merging everything together. We're, that was the original idea for the PS3. Yeah, we're so, we're so big. Every company gets, every console manufacturer, well, I, well Sega didn't. Sega never did, because with the Dreamcast, they didn't include DVD playback, mm-hmm. which I think was kind of one of the, one of the, killing blows for that console because I, I know, and I'm talking from personal experience, so I don't want to sound like I'm projecting, but I'm projecting a little. Everybody that I talked to, almost all the people I knew said, I'm not buying a Dreamcast. Why? Well, because I'm going to wait for the PlayStation 2 because it plays DVDs and it plays my PlayStation It was games. a huge selling point. Yeah, yeah. It was a massive selling point. But nobody knew what to do with the PlayStation 2 hardware when it came out. Like People couldn't develop for it at the start. PS2 or matter. PS3? PS2. Really? Because I thought PS2 was like rocking it. No, no, well, no. It took a while for them to understand, developers to understand how to take advantage of every last bit of its hardware prowess. My recollection of the PS2 hardware is at the start, developers struggled with it, but I might be mixing that up with the PS3 because I know the PS3 architecture was very difficult for people yes. to develop for at the start. Which this is why podcast is well known for our well researched. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny because when I listen to other podcasts, I hear the hosts all the time researching the information, or they have a guy off to the side that's checking their data. My yeah. viewpoint is, yeah, well, Den- I feel bad, Den- Denny. Why don't you do that for us? Den- Denny be- should be well, because we don't let him talk. And anyway, we and, you know, and speaking of Denny, I just want to say something, mm-hmm. okay? Like, I've been just listening to your podcast for the way- past week. I told you that's great. I thought you guys were joking, like, I thought he was a made up guy. Oh, yeah, you know, he's there. He's, he's, I walked in, it's like he's like gumming the windows and stuff. He actually does have his tongue cut off. Yeah. Is that legal? I, I don't know. I really don't. Yeah. It's, well, he's a, a joke. Uh, I think he's a convicted terrorist, so he doesn't have any rights. <laughs> I don't blame him. I don't blame him for that. I hope so. Yeah. That, that, that's scary. I mean, people want to feel sorry for Denny, but the simple fact of the matter is he's committed unspeakable atrocities <laughs> on this planet. I, I guess it's good s- that he has you guys at least, you know, doing something. Well, I, know, I guess like, productive. I mean, it's except nice I haven't. I've noticed he hasn't been exactly on the uh, bleeping side of things. Yeah, he's totally drunk. No, the it's ball on it's that. either this or Gitmo. I mean, what do you want? You know. <laughs> so, oh, but anyway, to, to narrow it down, hubris. Hubris always gets the console manufacturers mm-hmm, at one point, and I think right now the reason why Sony's killing it is because. The only thing they're doing is they're stepping into the room and they're not tripping over anything. Yeah, that's. I all think it was, it was uh, when they first announced the Xbox, uh, or when, when that whole thing came down with the whole proprietary, uh, where, where it was like you could only work on the your Xbox on that disc when that came out. I think it was um, Boogie One Two Three on the um, YouTube. Boogie's great, man. Yeah, he is great. <laughs> but he made he made the he made the observation. He said so he, he, that I'll always never forget. He said. He's like, Sony is already winning the console wars simply by showing up and by not being assholes. Yeah. Well, I believe the <laughs> Microsoft. summed it up. <laughs> I believe, if I recall correctly, it's been, what, a couple of years now. Microsoft's big mistakes were the, we're not going to let you play or use games unless you pay for a license. Um, web camera's going to be on all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we're going to focus on media. 
the whole that whole that awesome awesome YouTube video that guy made sports sports TV TV oh TV, I love that sports, one sports 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 Call of Duty television television Call of Duty Call of Duty Call of Duty Call of Duty and then fucking we are proud to announce. The Halo television series, yeah. Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Call of yeah. Duty, and then David Hayter, TV, 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 sports, <laughs> mixed him in there. Was uh, David Hayter in there? What's that? Was his voice mixed? Oh in well, the, he's the David Hayter is the EA Sports voice. Oh, was he? EA, EA Sports. I never knew that. It's in the game. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's how Hayter. That's Solid Snake. Yeah. So like when sports, Mine's sports, sports. When you hear that. it, next time you hear it. You'll totally be like, oh yeah, duh! How could I not know yeah. that? Oh my god, but, I never did. Yeah, because so, yeah, when, when I was first told that, I did the same thing. When you listen it back, it's like, oh my god, that is totally yep. Solid Snake. <laughs> duh. Which, so, speaking of Solid Snake, I wanted to add an addendum that you didn't mention about uh, when you were talking about in Smash Brothers how Solid Snake could have the uh, when it was using the, the, call, codec. the codec in there. One of the things you didn't mention is that. Uh, if I believe it's Falco, if you go against instead of Colonel Campbell, Slippy interrupts the uh, Kodak. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and he actually comes. Hey, there's thing. Like, who are you? You know. <laughs> yeah. And they also have like the, the addendum. Apparently, if you die, they'll do the whole snake, snake, snake. Mm-hmm. You know, you if know, you die in the middle of that. And you know what's a shame now? The only way that any Konami thing will ever show up in a Nintendo game is if it's a pachinko game. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. true. Big boss, the Just, pachinko. We got, we, we've got Solid Snake in here. It's a giant pachinko machine walks in. It's uh, Anyways, play, PS2. Oh. Hubris. Oh, yeah, Hubris. Just, you know, like the PS2 came out, and it was a great console. And, of course, that fueled Sony's hubris for the PS2. Absolutely. I it, hate to admit, but yes. Now, I will say That's what I, I love my PS3 now. It's a great library now, mm. and I love the console now. I have a backwards-compatible version with the 60 gig hard drive i replaced it with a 320 gig hard drive. i was gonna say wow that still works no well it's i have it in storage i because now i bought one of the slim ones that's a 500 gig hard drive okay and that's just the one i've had and that's been enough actually now it's getting pretty spare on on memory on storage but i don't really yeah i'm not really i bought three games for my ps3 and that was it yeah no i i have a very big library for my ps3 i love my ps3 library but it took a while for it that was my personal problem with that whole console generation was the hardware failure rate um i i personally had uh three wii's um three xbox 360s and two ps3s i had no problem with anything except the playstation i believe i replaced that twice yeah i will not one of them was like final fans and one of them was when on the day final fantasy 7 came out Ooh, oh God. which was really irritating yeah it would load up and it would just sit there on black screen and you just hear i will, I will knock on this word right fun. now i will knock on this word right now in the era of optical media my original playstation still works mm-hmm. and it's chip modded my original GameCube. The only reason I don't know if it still works is because I bought the Black Zelda one when it came out, mm-hmm. and that one still works. My Game Boy Player on it still works. Yeah. My um, my original PlayStation Three, the sixty gig one, as far as I know, it still works. When I put it in storage, because I didn't have room for both the sixty gig one and the five hundred gig one, but when I put it away, it worked. Mm-hmm. My PlayStation Four works. The only system, optical media-wise, that has ever given me a problem. My Nintendo Wii, it's the same one. The one you got your hands on, same one. The only one that I've ever had a problem with is the Xbox for the Red Ring of Death. I must have replaced that console four times. Mm -hmm. That's the only one. So... Yeah, I I had that too. Well, I mean, everybody had it. It was inevitable. They were all going to get it. So Mm -hmm. it was just a matter of time. But yeah, I went through, I think it was three of those yeah, too. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was really sad when you told me your uh, Neo Geo well, one of your Neo Geos. 
because you had Ooh, I have three of them. Yeah, you had ba- Oh, yeah. We oh, have three of them. I told you, you told me two. Yeah, I told you two before. Now, that's serious. Well, I thought I was already dedicated that you had two of them. Three of them? Wow. Well, the, the original. Oh, it was one to replace. Yeah, well, the original one I got, I was working at Eagle Grocery Store, which is now no longer in I remember existence. Eagle. Oh, and uh, I was working with a friend, a friend of mine at Eagle was like. Next door to Woolworths. A friend of mine at Eagle was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. We can, can we be any older? <laughs> we have. Oh yeah, I have. Uh, you know, I work at I work at a, I work at a store that sells electronic goods, and we have a Neo Geo in the back. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. It doesn't have a power supply or video cables, but it's got a Neo Geo under control. I was like, I want it. He's like, I'll give it to you for fifty bucks. Wow. So I paid him fifty bucks for it. <laughs> then Die Hard. I called Die Hard. I ordered an AC adapter. I he told me I could buy a Sega Genesis video cable. It was the same exact cable. Right. So I went to Babbage's and bought a video cable, and I ordered a used copy of World Heroes for 30 bucks. The reason why this was as a test bed. If this worked, then I was on board. Right. So then World Heroes worked, and that's when I ordered King of, Nin- King of Fighters 94, brand new. Because when I played, I'd always liked the Neo Geo, but never enough to own one. When yeah. I played King of Fighters 94, it was the first time I'd seen them cross characters over from multiple franchises in a fighting mm-hmm. game in any game, except for... Rio appearing in Fatal Fury Special, yes, which right. I believe he was the secret the, character in that I one. I believe that's the first time in a fighting game they had a dream match crossover in any fighting game. I think it was Fatal Fury Special. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yes, I believe it was. And but the thing is, that one character showing up, it wasn't enough to get me to commit to a Neo Geo. But now you've got all the the major art of fighting characters, the major Fatal Fury characters, all Ikari Warriors, Psycho Soldier. Yeah, the Ikari the Warriors is a big deal. I was like, oh my god, really? Yeah. All, drove them out all in the same game. I was. And it's a fighting game. I have to have this. So when I knew that my Neo Geo worked, that's when that all started. But then Duckhead sold me his. Oh, okay. Ooh. And that one had a loose AC connection, okay. which I'm sure I could get fixed now if I wanted to, but I just don't have a need to. And then the third one I bought, some friends of mine came into possession of it somehow. I don't know how they got into possession of it. It's best not to ask. Yeah. But Drove they, to Japan. They ended up getting a Neo Geo CD, and they're like, well, we don't need this card system anymore. They had no games for it anyway. So they ended up just selling it to me for like Selling bucks. a Neo Geo for a CD, boy, what yeah. a terrible decision. Ooh, the hindsight. Neo Geo CD was brutal on the load times. Mm. That fucking monkey. <gasps> so anyway, that's why I have three Neo. And the re- reason why is because I'm buying cartridges for 300 bucks a pop, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, if this hardware ever fails, I'll never be able to play these yeah, games that's again. Yeah, that's been gone. Yeah. So like now, that's why I have all the backups. But they've all been in storage for God, probably close to, probably be close to six or seven years now because I don't have any room for it. But now I'm getting rid of all this shit, mm-hmm. so now <laughs> I'm going to have room for it. And I think I'm going to bring my Neo Geo stuff back home because mm-hmm. getting my NES restored, I've just been like taken back to a wonderful place. Mm-hmm. You know, playing retro games, playing vintage games, an emulator. I can I can play the game. But I can't experience it in emulation. Like taking that cartridge, putting it into the slot, closing that door, holding that controller in your hands. Mm-hmm. That's why I want to fix my uh, Turbo CD. It's just that whole that yeah. little wind-up spin and everything. You, you yep. need the whole tactile experience if you're going to retro game, in my opinion. There's nothing like it. I completely it. agree. With my Neo Geo, I crack open that case and I smell all that plastic. I'm like, mm, that Neo Geo card <laughs> smell. I yeah. love it. It's, you know, you don't get that whenever you, whenever you run an emulator, whenever you run a ROM. Agreed. You don't get, you know, when, if you're not holding that Neo Geo controller, you're just playing a game. And that's yeah. fine. If you just want to experience it again, it's fine. But 
you got that tactile experience makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, that's why as much as I like emulation and being able to, you have you have instant on the game, you instant know, there. Uh, whole library, you know, whatever games you want, that's great. But at the same time, I've still got my setup with all mm-hmm. my systems, and they're all hooked See, up. See, I'll do that for like maybe like Super Nintendo. I I loved my Super Nintendo. It's probably not. It's and I'm probably like one of like three Americans who's going to say this, but it's probably is not as dear to me as was Turbo Graphics at the time. Yeah. Now I loved my Super Nintendo. Oh, I bought yeah, way I always, more games for, I, I for remember, my SNES than anything TG. But yeah. Still, I remember that was one of our when we first met and became friends at egm was that our mutual love of turbo graphics like yep. we both love that system like, i was so theory. bad for ed too because when we sent it to japan you be you know everybody would be like oh can you like pick up this like you know like a mario kart or something like that i'm the one guy's like can i have shabubin man ray you know can you get that to cd with this and... so let me ask you what a question you know, you know what he would say i don't know guy yeah, exactly. I don't know. Surprisingly, to his credit, he did get them. Yeah, he got I don't a know lot. How he of, pulled he got, it off. Yeah, he got a lot of obscure stuff. He would take that list. He would go to Japan. He was the guy. He would go, and then we'd all of us would write down, "Give me your lists," and then we'd write down. And Ed would get us like all these games we wanted from. And Japan. it was great, to, especially when uh, Super Metroid just hit in Japan. It was like a huge recession mm-hmm. happened right at that time. So literally, I think Super Metroid came out there for like, it was like something like $15 yeah. American dollars. <laughs> so like, and it was funny because I remember I was, at, I think Danny was on the phone with him. He was like, it's like, it was getting the orders. Like how many Super Metroids do we want? It's like, but... Ed, we want, he's like, okay, Ed, we want to like, I think we want like 15 Super Metroids. Like, <laughs> so let me ask you a question as the Turbo Graphics guy. You also said off the, off the podcast that you're the East, you're an East guy. Oh yeah, love okay. East. So it's recently, the ideal utopia. Once a paint kingdom so painful and prosperous. Do you know a kingdom where children is free? Do you know who wind. that is? The voice actor. Do you know who it is? No, Alan Oppenheimer. Do you know who Alan Oppenheimer is? No, Skeletor. Ah! Now, now, you know why went, now you know why East went to shit. <laughs> East, Skele- the ideal utopia. Now, <laughs> I would picture. love an East voiceover <laughs> as Skeletor. Once a country so peaceful and prosperous. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you the East question. I was recently in a forum conversation where I was I was a lurker. I was just an observer because mm-hmm. I didn't really have a good basis to answer. Fucking weirdo stalker. Yeah. Well, fuck you. <laughs> so anyway. That's the purpose, purpose of forums and Facebook in general, Do stalk people are you not with the new generation all right yeah man you're the weirdo start stalking people (laughs) damn it (laughs) so the question was what's the best way to play east one and two and i saw a variety of answers but by and large a lot of people were saying that the best way to play it is on the turbo cd yes now have you experienced the other versions of east like the the psp versions or the pc versions have you tried any? sadly i have to say no so i do not origins those types of okay yeah i I have not tried east origins or any of those things so okay how how far does your experience with east go is it just east books one and two or have you played any i played it's it's mostly in the turbo graphics uh era i have played east book one and two I played East Book, uh, Book Three. That was um, or East Three. That was done. I played both Japanese and American one. American one. <laughs> the, the, the intro <laughs> was okay. the American. Wait, that, that that got released for Turbo in America. It, it did. It was like okay. one of the last few ones, and you could tell, like the guy, like even the announcer in the beginning, because you know, it was like you know, in the Japanese one, there was like this, you know, beautiful pictorial talking about something like this. In the one where in the in the America was like you just hear some guy, oh, back to five thousand years ago. I just oh. God, I was horrible. So, but is it Mega Man 8 bad? 
Because you know Mega Man 8's dumb as fucking terrible. I don't know. I've heard some pretty epic ones. If Terry was here, yeah. Terry Minnick was here, we would talk to you about uh, the Turbo Graphics version of Valus 3. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. The, one of the favorite ones, one of oh, the bosses. No. It is the big green monster. That, it, it is that. This is literally, and I actually remember this because it was such a horrible line. When you get to, She gets to the boss, and the boss does this, and this is the voice executive. Even the mighty Ramses is taking me for a wimp. Having me fight with a girl. It literally sounded <laughs> just like that. Like some guy just reading up. It's like clearly just grab some people in like the hotline. Just hey, re- read this or something like yeah. that. At that point, it was like during the dying days. Oh, we were very just, lazy. Oh, it's so bad. Is? Well, we I talked to you about uh, um, Final Fight for Sega CD. Did oh, we yeah. experience that here? Yes, and yeah. when you were talking about that too, I remember clearly. Hello, Mike Hagar here. That. <laughs> That's not, that's you son of a... Did you stop seeing show a picture of what the guy looks like? Yeah, it was... Yeah, There's a, There are, is some bad, bad stuff on uh, TurboGrafx. But uh, at the same time, the TurboGrafx also had like the most beautiful 80s classic anime-style cutscenes. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful, Oh, if beautiful. you want to see one of the, the, the highlights that I liked, when we were talking about uh, Valus Phantasm Soldier, yeah. only came out in Japan... But um, in it, they have anime cutscenes in there too. But uh, typically, the um, up until that point, it was just you know the two frame animation beep 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 beep. You know yeah. with the lips there. In Valus uh, Phantasm Soldier, they actually animated the the mouth to the words. Oh wow! It was actually really impressive that they did that towards the end. Yeah. So. You know, speaking of classic anime, uh, we've we've harped on about that a few times. I've l- lately been following someone on YouTube who does a lot of anime critiques. Mm. And again, I don't want to give free plugs to anybody, but um, this person's pretty good at what they do. And uh, he brought up like why anime is not perceived to be quote unquote as good as it used to be. And he brought up, he said an interesting point about it. What he said was people that like to reminisce about the eighties and nineties, they're upset that anime is not what it was back then. He said, and the reason for that is because the people that did those, did those animes, they're not working in the industry anymore. Mm. The people that are working Mm -hmm. in the industry now just have a different style and it's not a style that they like. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I believe that it could fairly be argued that the style that is being done now is easier, faster, and more economic to produce. If you look at anime now, very few anime use light source, mm-hmm. shadows on the characters' faces, unless they're bad guys. Yeah. And then it's to show how they're bad guys. But the heroes rarely – there's rarely light source for the heroes. All the characters' skin is like pale white and clear the smiles on their faces are very badly drawn. Their noses are non-existent. Like anime yeah. noses have always been a subject of mm-hmm. scrutiny. But, but the interesting point that he brought up was like you know like you know if you like this old art style, those guys aren't doing it anymore. Yeah, you know. And I thought eh, that's a pretty valid criticism. That's yeah. a pretty fair thing to mm-hmm. say that those guys aren't doing it anymore. That's why it doesn't look like that anymore. Well, I've ironically got a little bit of that uh, too. Having grown up, uh, I was a Doctor Who fan, classic series Doctor Who fan, since I was like third grade. Yeah. So for me, like even the new series has a lot of changes. Oh, sure. So mm-hmm. from there, and it's like there's there's a p- big part of me that's going like, oh, I long for the days of like, I could name a several dozen things that I would love to have in the classic and the new series, and yeah. they do better, in my opinion, do better. Yeah. But like I said, it's, it's it was a whole a whole new generation has taken over. In the case of classic series, it's being actually made by fans now. Right, mm-hmm. right. That, that grew up in there, so... 
Yeah. I mean, in, in the case of Doctor Who. And they have anime. their own vision. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's yeah. yeah. I, I think that anime's, I think that anime's look now is also an, an element of it is the production. Yeah. Uh, I think anime, animation studios are, are understaffed and overworked now. Mm. They have to produce the artwork more quickly. Korean yes. animation studio. More. Everybody oh, I was with were... a friend of mine. We were we were reading up on like some people that were posting up online from the animation studios and like how horrible the conditions are and like how little pay they get and how like it's, it's just it's a it's just a turnhouse. It's so, just a grindhouse almost. So, yeah. You know, like as much as as much as we were shitting on modern anime and stuff like that, I do have to kind of I don't want to step it back, but I do want to say that in a way, I almost respect the guys that are doing it now more than the guys that were doing it then because they're working under much less favorable conditions and they're doing it. If there's no money in it, they're doing it for one reason. They're doing it for love. Mm-hmm. And I got to respect that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean I have to like the product that they're putting out, but I think <laughs> the days of me bad mouthing modern anime and just like shitting all over it, I think those are done. I'm just going to be like the guy that's like, you know what? It's not my cup of tea. Right. I prefer <laughs> the older stuff. Yeah. You know, because there are, there are, there are, there's a very dedicated group of people. Like people today that are doing it, if they walk away from the industry, it's not like there's another studio they can go to. If they walk away from it, they're not going to improve their situation by going somewhere else. They're getting out of the trade, yeah. and that's a bad thing. Right. Yep. Like a lot of the classic animators of my of my era that have moved on, they have the luxury of doing that. You know, or even Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli, he can walk away. That dude's a legend. Mm-hmm. He'll be able to do public speaking appearances or whatever he wants to do, and he's going to be taken care of. Right. <laughs> Not so these modern guys that are just fucking working themselves to the nub to produce mm-hmm. stuff, and they're doing it because they love it. We have you know? slaves. <laughs> yeah, their own versions work. of Denny's over there. Everybody work. Yeah, there's like a whole studio of Denny's over there. Yeah, <laughs> but at least they're allowed to keep their fingers. <laughs> so, anyway, so uh, I think we uh, we derailed a little bit. I think we, uh, we, I, we I were, uh, yeah, quite but, a few. But they, but you know, that's what anybody who listens know that that's what this show is about. It's about derailing conversations. <laughs> uh, well, where I'm, we uh, where we were back to was uh, e- the uh, the night sh- the night crew on EGM was like oh, the so last, now uh, we're down way back. Yeah, yeah but uh, I remember Duckhead was on the night crew for about a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that happened was oh, because yeah, that's right. he was on. Yeah, we changed uh, Danian's screensaver. <laughs> was that that got him banished to the night crew? Yeah. Yep. Uh, we uh, uh, Danian had a screensaver on his computer at uh, EGM that uh, flashed all the video game logos. So uh, you know when Danian walked away from his computer and a screensaver kicked in, it would be like an Atari logo and then a Nintendo logo and then a Neo Geo logo and all these different video game logos that. In his off time somewhere, he painstakingly, you know, before the days of the internet, <laughs> found all these, you know, you have to think about that. Yeah, there we was, didn't have there internet. Was, there wasn't, like he didn't do a Google search. He had to find these logos. You know, we had them as artwork from the companies or mm-hmm. he scanned brochures. I don't know how he got them, but it took effort. Yep. That's all I know. It wasn't like it was back then. There yeah, was no definitely. internet. So he put in effort and made the screensaver and apparently was way more proud of it than we realized he was. And uh, one night, Mark and I went around the office and picked a bunch of random items and scanned them and put them in Daniel's screensaver in place of the video game. We left some of them in there, though, so he would think nothing was amiss. So you would be, you know, Nintendo, Sega, bottle of Windex, 
roll of toilet paper, action figure, just various things we found around the office. And we scanned all these things. Who was the one, the, the video game champion? Oh, Thor Ackerlin. Thor, Thor Ackerlin. There was oh, a big, yes, yes, yes. It was all, all, all these things. Did I'm, you have him say, like, hi, Daniel, I'm Thor Ackerlin? <laughs> hi, Daniel, I'm Thor Ackerlin. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, all these various things, including a picture of Thor Ackerlin. Yes, I forgot about that. Thank you. Um, and then uh, we got in trouble. <laughs> he uh, he told. I never Martin. knew you actually got in trouble. And he, that's uh, he, went he told. On. He told on us. He told Martin, and uh, Martin gave us a talking to and said, "Mark, you're getting moved to night shift," and that lasted about a week. <laughs> and then uh, he was back on day shift. How again. did he get out of that? Because he's duckhead. He does whatever he wants, and you know, everyone just accepts it. That's always how it's been. <laughs> he wants to come in and sleep behind the Neo Geo machine. That's what he does. It's like something from like a movie. I'm thinking like you know EGM the movie, like no. you know a, 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 a historical. You could totally a, a dramat- make a, doc- a dramatized, oh, totally. a dramatized account of the life and times of EGM. You know, yeah. like we were joking about like that. We was like, who's going to cast who? You know, like I think back then I was saying I was J- John Candy would be me, yeah. but now now I would say Jack Black. <laughs> <laughs> Was, yeah, uh, it was. It was a total crazy you drama could thing absolutely there. do a documentary about EGM history and interview various people that work there and make a very entertaining documentary. We oh, especially should, drug stories. We shouldn't. Yeah, we should make it. I happen. can tell you the day. I, I, I will. I, I won't tell you the details because if you ever get Danyan on here. But I remember Danyan for his, I think, 21st birthday or something like that. Uh, they went and get, they went to get him like uh, drunk. And I was working on night crew at the time. And Mike Weigand. Who I was like really good with. I don't think you ever met him. Yeah, Major Mike. He yeah. was actually on Game Pro and stuff like that. Suddenly he just like runs and he's like, dude, I had to bring him back here to show you. I'm like, what? He's like, you gotta see this. And they're like bringing Danny. He's like, hi, Mike. I'm happy. <laughs> you see, but now I can say these stories kind of safely because they've got one of the worst ones on me. Which one's that? Um, it's when we were at Roach's apartment. And uh, Roach is another guy that we used to work with, Mike Desmond. And uh, we were he, he would throw these different parties here and there. So, And, oh, my God, the, he had a pet little potbelly pig. Looked just like Peachon from, like, uh, nice. uh, from Ranma. Anyways, they had him in the bathroom. And I got, again, I thoroughly, absolutely, completely bombed. I ran to the bathroom, and I got sick. Ran to the bathroom, threw up. Apparently, I may have hit the pig. <laughs> you will actually see in the magazine pictures of my face with a little word bubble says, I did not puke on the pig. <laughs> oh my God. It's <laughs> so ridiculous, man. The, the, um, now, let me ask you, uh, you had an interesting story about, uh, we both have interesting stories about our first meeting with Steve Harris. Nine feet. Well, I guess mine was interesting, so to a degree. It wasn't really that interesting. I think my interview was more interesting than yeah. My maybe first that's what I'm there. thinking so of. You had it, yeah. I remember theirs. Yeah, you could tell yours first with uh, Steve. Well, mine was, and you may know this one, Tom. I don't. I'm know. sure you've told me yours. But um, go ahead. The first time I met Steve Harris was not when I worked there, but it was uh, before I worked there. It was one of the times when Martin brought me in. It was like two or three times I came in and got to see the office and play some games that hadn't come out yet and do all that cool stuff. And uh, one of the times I went there, he was like, uh, oh, well, Steve's in here. Uh, you want to meet Steve? Uh, yeah, that'd be cool, yeah. So, uh, Oh, we, is this the vending machine? No. Um, this is uh, when uh, they had ju- Steve had just gotten uh, Sendai's conference telephone system installed oh, yes. for the first time. 
It was the first day they had the conference telephone system installed. So my very first meeting with Steve Harris is Martin walking me into this room, and there's Steve Harris. And how how do we how do we explain who Steve Rhino is? Uh, it was his best friend. Yeah. It was his best friend over. Uh, I don't think there was any controversy the fact that he worked at Atari or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. So yeah, I was just working on there. Just, so uh, Steve, yeah, they were there because they, they did Steve's it way back. Steve's buddy from I believe it was were they um, U.S. National Video Game Team together. I want to say yes, yeah. but I'm not too sure. Yeah. But they were way back. Yeah, yeah. So so Steve Harris, Steve Rhino, calling two 7-Elevens, the 7-Eleven in Lyle and the 7-Eleven in Lombard. I have heard this story. And calling them and connecting them together <laughs> to make them think that they'd called each other, even though they hadn't. So it, my very first meeting is walking into this room and Martin saying, hey, Steve, and Steve going, shh, 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 shh. hello, this is 7-Eleven Lyle. Yes, yes, this is 7-Eleven Lombard. Yes, I know, this is 7-Eleven. Yes, what do you, you called me. No, you called me. That's the, the very racist accent I'm doing, but the point is, that, but that's what it oh, sounded like. Oh, there, that just happened that's by what the way here. Like, but yeah. that's what it sounded like, you know, to me, an American. That's, that's, mm-hmm. This is how it is. And, and uh, this went on for uh, about a full three, four minutes. Of these two guys arguing about who called who, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that was uh... see that that is such a scene from a movie. Yeah, oh, that's, I had... that's the first scene in a movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I got one happen on the way here. I told you I went to get pick up a soda. Yeah. And you know, I went over there, used my credit card. It was it was a I saw there was soda there. It's like you can get uh, if you buy two, you get one for a dollar. So I'm like, okay, I put it over there, and you know, use my card, pay for it there. And you know, the guy he was there. He was Indian. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, you know, cheap. I'm like, yeah, it is. It was actually a good deal. And he's like, no, cheap. And I'm just like, okay, yeah. And I was like, like a bird, cheap. And he just goes, cheap. And I'm like, what, like a bird, cheap, cheap. Like I actually did that, cheap, cheap. And he's like, no, cheap. And he points cheap, at my cheap. card. And I'm like, oh, chip. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I knew exactly where you were going with that because my mother speaks in a heavily accented Greek accent. <laughs> I have a thick Greek accent, heavily accented Greek accent. You're Greek? Oh, yeah. You're going to find out later. <laughs> but, I'll uh, film. <laughs> <laughs> Who fluffs? <laughs> so Denny. Anyway. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> We're not making that movie. You don't have the talk anymore, so... You know what? Fine. Denny can fluff, but if that's the case, I'm catching. It's all you, Ray. <laughs> I'm not letting that filthy... If you don't know what that joke. word means, too bad. So anyway, uh, my mom speaks in a thick Greek accent, so instead of saying foggy, she'll say fucky. The weather's very fucky outside. <laughs> you know. And when my mom tries to write in English, it's really funny because Greeks will pronounce something like chips. She'll say tsips. You know, and she'll write it on the paper, T-S-I-P-S, Tsips. <laughs> so I knew exactly where you were going with that because I grew up in a household where my parents had very Well, I would access. know something like that, too. I actually made my mom laugh one time because they were watching some old uh, movie or something like that. And, you know, it was like, you know, it was back then where it was like, you know, like the 19, I don't know, 30s or something like that. And, you know, yeah, the black stereotypes with the, you know, like kind of like the, the woman from uh, Tom and Jerry kind Bammy. of thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Bammy. And like she was sitting there, she was walking. She's like, "Yeah, you know, we're gonna have to do this, or we're gonna have to. We can't do this, or we're gonna end up in the P-U-H-O-S. And I'm like, you know, my mother's like, didn't know, and I instantly went, "Oh, she means the poorhouse." 
And, and just like, it's like, you know, the one guy was like, what do you mean, people? What does that stand for? You know, the pool house. And like, my mother looked at me. She's like, how do you know that? I said, because working at EGM, we had so much English mm-hmm. we had to deal with. Yeah. It's very easy to pick up things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tell Tom the, uh, the game review story. Okay, <laughs> after this, if it's cool. Do we have any, t- do we hit any of our topics? Uh, we haven't hit, uh, there's some topical stuff I would like to bring up. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe after this one, unless you, unless you think of something else, let's hit some topical stuff. That's, yeah, that's fine. Um, okay. But yeah, but go on with. Tell uh, me the I'll, tell, I'll tell this one uh, in short. Uh, well, what happened was there was, uh, basically, I'll try to tell as short as possible. There was an editorial blunder where Ed wanted to get like these uh the, some pages had to go out Ed's just like you know just go here he like pre-signed some proofs and we uh, uh, no, wait, to, what are no what are proofs for proofs context? are uh, for context is what we'll do is we'll print out a page the editor reads them over and then puts a final signature if it's good to go or not okay so what he did was he just signed the proof we threw them in the machine and then it came out with his signature already on there. So because it was a time, something like that. He's like, and I forget who he was dealing with directly at the time. Might have been Colleen Bastion at that time. Uh, so the game, uh, so one of the review pages went out. Well, it got printed where it was it like two or three of them had, instead of all the text in there, it had the dummy text game review. That's awesome. And they had numbers in there. <laughs> but what? just game review, game review. So but he the, did give them a number. He did give them a number. Or but did he? Like, were they the numbers left over from the previous review? That is a very good question. Now, the question is, did people know what games were supposed to be reviewed, or did it just say game review? Oh, it, it just said game review. It said the words game review. In, in there, but, the, the, but it was like, here, here's basically for context sake, it was like, here's the name of the game, here's the picture of it, here's Martin's review, game review. Here's, you know, oh, such, okay. such, such review, such and such review. So his review, where it was supposed to have the text, just said the words game review. It was there. Well, anyways, the, what, where it becomes funny is we were all having the meeting uh, sitting there, a round table, where we were all just sitting there talking about and everything. this went to the store. This went to print. print. This I, I print. figured that it got printed. Yeah. Exactly. So we're sitting there, and Steve Harris comes, like, walking in, and he walks by, and, you know, he walks out the other room, and then he walks in, leans in, and just looks over. And, you know, Eddie, you always use reads, like, okay, so we're doing he looks over at Steve, and Steve's just like, "No, no, no, go on." No, I'm just, I'm just looking. He's like, "Okay, well, Steffi, on page 37, what we've got here is," and then Steve just goes, "Game review," <laughs> just staring right at Ed, and smiling. What's cool is that he found it kind of funny, <laughs> rather than blowing his top about it. I mean, even if he was upset about it, it's kind of, it's kind of oh. cool that he had like a very lackadaisical sort of sarcastic way of. Yeah, doing I guess. Oh, I've seen Steve blow his. Oh, top. I'm sure he has. Yeah, that's what we should. Yeah, we should talk about that a little bit. It's just uh, like, like I said, I didn't know him as well, certainly as as you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was me, surprised how well I got to know him, but it was mostly because he was doing a lot of stuff at night. Yeah. It was just he and I, which initially terrified the hell out of me yeah because i mean yeah he, he could also be abrasive because here's another story of first meeting steve harris uh mine isn't this but this was somebody else this one we were expanding when we did hero illustrated and several other ones that were going on mm-hmm. there was some guy i think his name was i mentioned his name before uh but he was like sort of like sorting the comics and stuff like that and steve just walks past him looks at him john benton i think was his name okay and he just walks past him looks at him walks past and then he walks he just walks back points and goes who the fuck are you <laughs> And he's just like, uh, I'm John Benton. I were, I, you know, I'm just like, I'm here. I'm hired to do this and this. And he's like, oh, 
Okay, I'm Steve Harris. Welcome to Sendai. <laughs> and he walks off. <laughs> he walks off. That's awesome. Yeah, he was just a really weird, hard to read kind of to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, I don't know if he's going to like laugh or kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> that could be that way. He came yes. in. Uh, I remember Mark. Uh, Mark had this famous picture up on his cubicle always where he had scanned his middle finger. Yes, I remember that. He scanned his middle finger, and he had it up on his cubicle, and that was just a picture he had up on his cubicle was just his middle finger. And one day, Steve walked up to his cubicle, and he looks at it, and he goes, that's funny. Waste of resources, but funny. And then walks away. (laughs) (laughs) And he just had that deadpan delivery of of everything that, uh, that he said. It just proves that if you amuse someone... You can get away with a bit more. Yeah, <laughs> I've always said that making people laugh is like the best way to mm-hmm. to yes. ingratiate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so topics. So uh, I wrote down a number of topics before we did this podcast. I think maybe we should explain the one that I was doing in the uh, video <laughs> that I when I stumbled on. You were playing Pokemon Go. Yeah. Oh well, that is on the list. We'll get to it. But there are a couple. I want to kind of. They're, these aren't you in have any a priority. Order. They're not in any real priority. But let's just go ahead and take it from the top. Right. And the first thing that I thought of writing about was um, uh, Gay Sulu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, for anybody that might not know what's going on, in the new Star Trek movie, uh, Star Trek Beyond, it is confirmed that the this universe's version of Hikaru Sulu, who is the navigator of the Enterprise, is Wait, gay. who is he now? The guy with the sword. Oh, got it. Okay, fences a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> the guy, um, the guy who likes to go. If you remember the old series, he goes oh my a lot. Oh my. So yeah, so uh, in uh, John Cho, John Cho is the char- is the actor who is now playing Sulu. Playing and they Sulu. have confirmed that in the movie, uh, the character is now going to be a gay character. The character is now going to be a gay character, sure. and it's not anything that's a pervasive element of the movie. As mm-hmm. I understand it, the crew of the Enterprise is like dispersed at the beginning of the movie, and it becomes this. And I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that they're all kind of doing their own thing, mm. and they decide to get the band back together. Mm-hmm. And when Sulu finds out, like his husband says, "Are you really going to go out there?" And apparently, they have an adopted. Oh, so daughter. they're actually married as well. Okay, uh, yeah, they're married, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is fine. It's the future. No, I just didn't know the details. I didn't know they had any details out. But uh, but apparently it's like, I can't believe you'd be crazy enough to go back out there. So like all the crew of the Enterprise is on board with like getting back out to it or mm-hmm. something. Or maybe they're just like waiting for the ship to be refitted or something. I don't know. But the point is they show him in a scene in everyday life before he goes back on active duty or whatever. Right. Now, the kerfuffle about this is that George Takei has come out in opposition to this maneuver, mm-hmm. stating there are two reasons for it. Uh, number one reason is that he says that in his many conversations with Gene Roddenberry, Roddenberry had stated and conversed with, with, with George Takei, and they both agreed, Hikaru Sulu, the character, is straight. It's a conversation they had back in the 60s mm-hmm. right. when they were making the this show. This was his original vision. Mm-hmm. That was his original vision. And not to say that Roddenberry wouldn't have included a gay character because Star Trek was already challenging a lot of... I think, yeah. I think in, in that... Partic- at that particular time, it would have been like I'm already getting away with a lot of crap. Yeah. Back and- at that time, it was the whole kiss between interracial kiss yeah. that was considered controversial. That was a big, yeah, that was that huge. was a big deal. But I think Roddenberry would have done it if he could have. Right. Yeah, but today, the, the point is he didn't. Yeah, if he was doing it today, he would have done it. That's fine mm-hmm. and no problem. 
But, but he ain't. But he didn't do it, and the character is not gay. Mm. Now, whether or not you agree with that social stance is one thing, but the point is both Roddenberry and Takei have stated that their conversations indicate that the character was not gay. Yeah. And the other – and Takei objects to making Sulu gay um, on the grounds of that, but also apparently one of the things that came out was that they were doing it as a tribute to him. To George Takei. And George Takei says, I don't want that tribute. I want the character to remain true yeah. to his creative roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said that he felt that making Sulu gay is tokenism, is tokenistic. Mm-hmm. And he said, if, if, the, if you're just going to include it in there, don't bother doing it. If you're going to make a gay character, just make an all-new character and have that character be yep. gay. Now, keep in mind, this is George Takei, who, who is gay, yeah. openly gay. And he's an icon. He's a gay icon. And... You know, he's also the icon for Sulu as well, right? Yeah. And he came out and he said that I don't like the character being gay. Well, Simon Pegg and Zachary Quinto, Zachary Quinto, who is also homosexual, mm-hmm. have respectfully disagreed with it. And um, I would like to know what you guys think of it. What do you well, guys think of what do you guys think of them making this change? I can to sum Sulu? this up real easy for me. Um, I don't have a problem with it, but I think it comes at the wrong time. I think uh, right now it just comes off as like a bandwagon jump. I th- I, that's, there, I, there are a lot of people. There's always the token. I was watching. Um, uh, I know what you're talking about. I was just watching. Um, what's that one? Netflix, not Daredevil. The other one. Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones. I just watched the first episode. And, you know, I'm just like watching this character. And there was that uh, black haired girl, the one from Matrix. Yeah. And as soon as that one girl came up behind, I'm like, oh, let me get let me guess. Lesbian. Right. You know, and it's and like you say, I know what you mean by bandwagon jump. Yeah, it's so. just like it, 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 it doesn't it's not it's sincere. not them leading. It's not sincere. The to progressive me. idea. Yeah, it, it's yeah. just like Star uh, Trek led the progressive idea. They're not they're just following. Yeah, that's the trick. It's Star Trek. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm like, you know, this is a thing that Star Trek does. They're always like, you know, acceptance and pushing these issues and things like that. That's fine because it's Star Trek. But doing this right now. Even though it's Star Trek, to me, I just feel like it's a bandwagon jump. I, I you know, it's, uh, but I don't have a problem with it. It's fine. Sulu's mm-hmm. gay. There's a scene with Sulu and his husband. I, who well, gives a shit? I'll, t- I'll tell you my version. When I first read it, I just heard that they're making uh, Sulu gay. I'm like, I initially thought that's actually a clever idea because, again, well, Sulu, you know, you know, George Takai is a Takai, 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 and he will correct you. Yes, right. I've heard about because that, I've so heard him terrible. actually say rhymes with gay. I've actually heard him say that. <laughs> now that is the easiest way to remember. Well, Thank he's, you. Um, he he appeared frequently on Howard Stern a number of years back, and he was he like actually was a guest voice for Stern, and like George Takai rhymes with gay. So that's how I know. <laughs> right. So anyway, so well, anyways, when I heard that, I'm. I'm I immediately said the same thing. I'm like, well, that's a great homage to him, to like the kind of the the the, the gay iconic legacy that George Takei has actually created. Mm-hmm. But then when I like read that he was a poser, I'm like, what? And then I read what he was saying. I'm like, wow, that is genuine. Yeah, that's what I like. He actually he cared. He could separate. He, here he has an opportunity to push quote unquote his agenda, but he doesn't. He observes Roddenberry's original image yeah. and says no. This is not what it was. He does do not make this character this, even though I'm Sulu, even though it's like known for that, and a lot of people associate. Don't make him. He's kind of like saying, "Don't make him." It's the division between real, real life and art, I guess, kind of a mm-hmm. thing. And so, I actually really respected him for like ten times even more now than I than I used to before from actually making that distinction. He could have been opportunistic and said, "Oh, you know, that was great. Thank you for doing that and stuff like that." Yeah. No, he said. 
this is the artistic vision that Roddenberry had. This is his creation, you know, and for the other fans, you know, that's theirs. Do this, you know. I think it's interesting the position that it's put people who are interested on either side of the issue. Mm -hmm. It's the position that it's put them in because, you know, like, what do you do? Are you going to be mad at George Takei because he doesn't want Sulu to be gay? He's gay, and the whole thing was done, yeah, was done yeah. as a tribute to him. Yeah. So what do you do? You're I can get see on the, George uh, Takei's yeah. ass about it? Like, I can see the masses being very confused. What do I think? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm more along with you, Mike, about mm-hmm. the – about my feeling is, is like – actually, I agree with both of you. I agree with what you said, too. Yeah, that I, is, agree, I agree with the, what you that's said. That's another whole other aspect yeah, I agree that, with, too. Right. I do feel that it is. I do feel that it is bandwagon jumping because right now, inclusiveness is a really big thing in mm-hmm. in our media in our media consumption these days. Um, it creates hype. It creates buzz. It gets people talking about it. There's nothing really inherently wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm with you, uh, Mike, in the sense that I feel, and that makes me with George Takei. I stand with George. Yeah. Hashtag I stand with George. <laughs> I. It's funny because I. I read this this issue. Uh, I don't normally think about things that much, you know. I I won't put I won't put a lot of thought into issues like this. But this one actually made me stop for a while and really ponder it. Like the fact that I why why uh, why do I stand with George? Why do I think is it for the reasons we talked about, or am I just the current version of all the old people who were pissed off about the interracial kiss back in the '60s? Am I now that? Am I that guy now for this era? Am I the new old guy from this era? No, no they're making Sulu gay now. But yeah, it's the same even, thing. You're not well, but or, you're, or am I? You know, I really had to sit and think about it. Am I just an old fogey who's pissed off that they're making this character gay when he originally wasn't? No, I don't think so. I think that it would be different in this context because they are mm. changing an existence. See, now that's kind of interesting because here's actually a dynamic too. Like if if people are pissed off that they're just making Sulu gay for that, how many people were pissed off? When they made um, Nick Fury a black guy, sure. who was also who was played by Samuel L. Jackson. Now I understand there's a context to that because I guess it was the Ultimates or something. He, he they depicted the him as uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a, there's an in joke in the comic where the Avengers are talking about who would play them in the movie. I heard about that. And, yes, and, and Nick Fury says Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson. Jackson. No of question. Of Captain America, who was only recently thawed from the ice, he's reading a newspaper and they keep bringing up all this stuff. And Captain America looks up from the newspaper and he's like, "Who?" <laughs> but even at that point that I'll say in the comic did people have a problem no. with him becoming black no, and stuff be- like that. No, and here's the reason why is because the character was so well written and so engaging that nobody complained about it. Mm-hmm. It didn't come off as tokenistic. It came off as like, wow, this is cool. They're writing Nick Fury as though he's Samuel L. Jackson and we like seeing Samuel L. Jackson interact with Tony mm-hmm. Stark and Steve Rogers and Thor. Right. We enjoy that. It's it was just Granted, it was very derivative, but because it's Samuel L. Jackson, and it's obvious it's mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson. But the thing is, it was so enjoyable that nobody complained about it. It was well done. Ham, it was ham-handed. It was obvious <laughs> it was Sam, but mm-hmm. it was so entertaining that nobody really cared about mm-hmm. it. Now, I have more objections with them changing the six one six version from the original guy with the white, the white guy with the eye patch. Now they've changed him. Now it's the, like the, uh, the original Nick Fury was a white guy with an eye patch. Okay. 
So yeah, that's what I remember. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you said six one six, I didn't. Well, know what okay. That meant. So the, the, I thought it was like what's Android six one six. I no, got a little the BBC original. Going on. No, the official Marvel universe is the six one six universe. That's because there are like six hundred and sixty six Marvel ah. universes. Now they're all wiped out. Now there's only one. But the six one six, which is like the true Marvel universe that we've all been reading about for years and years mm-hmm. and years, that version was the white guy with the eye patch. Now played by ch- David Hasselhoff. Exactly. <laughs> Well, now they've changed it to where, like, that Nick Fury has gone away somewhere. Nobody knows where he is. And now the guy that's replaced him is supposedly his son, but his son is, like, his adopted son or his genetic son or something, where it's a black guy. Okay. And the reason I have an issue with that is because this character is just not that interesting. Mm-hmm. He's not He's not that interesting of a character, whereas the original old Nick Fury is just a more interesting guy. He has history with all of these characters, whereas this new guy doesn't. And mm-hmm. that's the only reason I have an objection to it. It's like, not to mention, it's like, man, do they have to make everything like the movies? It doesn't have to be like the movies. Right. You know, sometimes we like our old things the way they are. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I I don't think you're the old guy because uh, you're not making that big of a deal out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I and, and we've talked about this before, and all three of us, in fact, um, you know, we grew up on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're always, we've always been accepting of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about that in the podcast yeah. before. We're, you know, we're like hey, gay, whatever. Yeah, we don't also, care. Also, just on a denim for me, I was more a classic series Doctor Who fan than that, but they were also very progressive. There was actually, like, I think it was during the uh, early 70s, they actually had quite a few uh, uh, scenes where they would mention women's lib and stuff like yeah. that. So, well, yeah. and here's the thing those elements were in service to the narrative. They weren't there simply to check off, like, some sort of diversity checklist. Right. They weren't there just to be there they serve the narrative purpose this comes to the other thing that that bothers me about them making but it's so damn obvious that's just a checklist point yeah well and there's this literary concept called Chekhov's gun i don't know if you guys have ever heard of it it so, sounds familiar so what Chekhov's gun is there's a story written by an author where the author's name is Chekhov, um and in the story he describes a gun sitting on like a dresser or a table or a bed or something like that. As a writer, if you're going to introduce that element into the story, you have to do something with that element. Sexuality is the type of thing where if you include it, just to include it, just to show that the world is a diverse place. In my opinion, when I'm experiencing a story, or when I'm reading something, that's almost like a promise the author is making to me that this is going to be something that is relevant to the a story. A plot point. A plot point. This is fiction. This is not the real world. It doesn't have to be representative of the real world. But if you're so if you're going to introduce these elements into the scope of your narrative, you're expecting some sort of a thing to happen because of it. In Game of Thrones, for example, homosexuality becomes an issue in the story when you find out that one of the characters had a homosexual relationship with one of the pretenders to the throne. Well, later on, the religion of the city, the religion of the country which opposes homosexuality. It's a backwards religion, and the writing illustrates that, but it's a, it's a feudal, mm-hmm. it's a fictional version of a feudal world, yes. and in a feudal world, homosexuality was considered a sin. Well, that character ends up suffering later when that church gets a hold of him mm-hmm. because of his homosexuality. Therefore, it makes it a plot purpose. It's a, it's a plot point. There's a narrative purpose to the character's homosexuality, Whereas just throwing it in to throw it in, it feels ham-handed and unnecessary. Yeah, we watch uh, the Flash, and in the Flash, the uh, the the you watch it. I watch Flash. Yes. Okay. I've only seen season one though, but go ahead. It um, the, it's not going to spoil anything, uh, except for the fact that the uh, they they work at a Barry's. Uh, you know, he's a CSI 
He works at the police station. Right. Yep. The chief of police. Oh yes. The chief has, of police. Ha, is gay. Has a has a husband. And it's just like there'll be like throwaway lines in episodes like, oh, my husband's going to, you know, I got to get home, my husband this mm-hmm. or my husband that. And it's just like it comes off as just so ham fisted. And we like we laugh like me and my wife like laughed out loud when the guy said, like, did he just say that? It's just it just comes off as comical. It, like it, it's it, just it's silly. And it's, it's like and work- somebody said to me, somebody actually said to me, I told this story to somebody who said gay people exist, man. That's not what it's about, sir. Mm-hmm. It's just about this has nothing to do with the show. It's like you said, the gun, the perfect, it's perfect. If you're going to introduce it, do something with it. Yeah. But they don't. It's just in there because of checklist. That's mm-hmm. why I'm laughing at it. I'm not, la- I'm not, it's not that gay people exist. I know that. It has nothing to do with that. It's just silly. Mm-hmm. No, no. Well, something that we're just not used to actually seeing there too. So yeah, well, I, but it's fine if you put it in there and then do something with it. Like, oh, this it, we wouldn't have laughed. It's hard for me to say on that one simply because, because uh, like, let's just say they just swapped out with a wife. I mean, it's still the same point. What's the point of bringing up a wife then? Yeah, but you don't. But but it's just our culture. You mm-hmm. don't make that connection. You don't make that. He said something. You know, his wife's going to be mad because he get to go. He made a joke. Mm-hmm. But in this case, when it's the husband, it's just like. You know, that's our culture. It it just doesn't, you know, it has nothing to do with, you know, I know that, but they're just not doing anything with the story. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with, look, gay people exist, man. Yeah. Well, I'll know. tell you why not- it was jarring for me for with that guy is because he did not seem absolutely homosexual at all to me. Right. He seemed there, which could be really bad on me saying that. Right. Because that's almost like saying there's like, a, there, is there a way that they act? No. So, no, no, so me, me there, and my so. wife laughing at that joke, or it's, it wasn't a joke. We, like, we no, turned yeah. it into a joke. You know, are we old fogies who are just stuck in this backwards now, now scale, time? Scale that back, though. Neither of you guys should really feel bad about your reaction to that. And here's why. It's like you said, it's a cultural perception, okay? Mm-hmm. You are a product of our society, and our society is a society that is growing and changing. Its perceptions yep. are ever expanding. So look for to, you to like, have that – token. So yeah. for you to have that reaction about that, it isn't a bad thing, and it's nothing to feel guilty about. It's simply something that, you know, you, the culture that you're a part of is just – that is not something that you're used to. So for you to even notice that, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, for that guy to say gay people are a thing that exists, it's like, you know, I get that point. But this is this you're not is, saying that they don't exist. You're just like, well, that's kind of like jarring. Well, yeah, that, yeah, it's it just you can tell it doesn't belong. I don't think there is a phrase that Stephen King once had. If you're not honest with your writing, your audience is going to know. Mm-hmm. And I think that instance that you're talking about or even Sue's inclusion, which we know are being put in for their own sake, for the sake of inclusivity. And it theory, comes off that way. Then. It, it doesn't come off as honest mm-hmm. writing. It comes off as an attempt to be inclusive. It comes off as an attempt to join a social movement. The real and world. it feels alien mm-hmm. to the structure of the rest of the Well, narrative. I don't know if you, if you, if you since you were watching uh, the new series, Doctor Who, there was often, uh, they were referred to, there was actually a big thing called the, uh, especially during the Russell T. Davis era, they would refer to it as the gay agenda. Oh, sure. There was always this one point where there was somebody, I, I often described it out of Captain forum. Captain Jack Harkness. Well, Captain Jack Harkness is one of them, but at least they made him a character with that. They would just have like one scene where, you know, they would be like talking, like you were saying, there was this one girl that she's like sitting there in the future, and there's the or there's like these two old ladies sitting there and they're like in the car and they're like you know they've been together forever it's like it's like also oh, you know what are your like what you and your friend we're not friends oh no she's not just my sister we're married 
You know, I was like, what, what was the point of that? Right. It had nothing to do with the uh, right. point there, but they're like, they're correct things like that. They would have a point like that. And I was trying to explain to somebody there's like, oh, well, you know, the gay agenda, you know, that's, you know, you're just trying to be all like homophobic. Well, no, you got to understand for people of a certain generation that's new to us. And that's like, of course, we're trying to accept yeah. and like, like learn this, but that almost seems like pandering. It's like, and take that out and put in a can of Dr. Pepper. The next scene, have a billboard with a Dr. Pepper in the corner. And then the next scene, have a doctor drinking a Dr. Pepper yeah. in that scene. Everybody, well, what's with the Dr. Pepper agenda? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, why it, it comes up very noticeable. Yeah. yeah and yeah. That, that, that goes back to the honesty thing. Mm -hmm. Like if we, we are in a certain culture and I think forcing the issue is not the way to gain acceptance mm -hmm. about it. Forcing that issue is not the way to do it. The example that I always like to bring up is the romance between Han Solo and Princess Leia. It's the only romance in Star Wars. You think there might be something between Luke and Leia, but obviously she falls for Han, and all that's before you find out that they're, <laughs> that they're brother and sister, which is something I don't understand why people troll that anyway, because they didn't know. Yeah. Well, it's funny. <laughs> it's, I guess it's funny, but like to troll it and be like, oh, Luke and Leia oh, are uh, so Should gross. I have hit the spoiler alert for that? <laughs> <laughs> Statute of limitations, motherfuckers. All right. So anyway, that Spoiler romance, alert, Jabba is Han's father. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That romance is something that is pertinent to the plot. It's important to the storyline of the characters. That's why it's in there. You don't know anything about Luke's sexuality. You don't know anything about Obi-Wan's sexuality. You know Anakin's sexuality because you have to know it because he has kids. Mm -hmm. Like in the prequel trilogy, Anakin and Padme have a relationship because – well, because George Lucas is an unimaginative such a well-written romantic era. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. But, you know, because there has Creepy to be a reason why the looks. kids... <laughs> there has to be a reason <laughs> why the kids <laughs> are born, right? Friends of mine, we always make fun of that. Yeah. <laughs> there, there has to be a reason why the kids are born, though, right? Right, mm -hmm. exactly. You know, that's, so that's it. But the point is... I like the, the King and Kodos idea, just like Anakin with a gun. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's the stomach, and that's it. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 sexuality of those characters is pertinent to the story, therefore it's included. But you don't know what Luke's sexual. Well, you presume he likes women because he kisses Leia. Mm -hmm. and you could presume that, but the point is, if you take that scene out, which is just a comic beat, really. Yeah, it's just a comic beat. If you take that scene out, well, actually, could... the the thing is, it actually was a plot relevant thing because it was to show the tension between Leia and Han. Actually, the, that that is true. That she did mm -hmm. it just to fucking piss Han off. Yeah. But like, think, think about this. A writer could have written something else to exploit that same tension. If you modify that scene and you don't have that kiss and you don't need to know Luke's sexuality because it's not important to the story. Luke's journey is not a journey of sexual discovery and relationship. Luke's journey is the path of the Jedi. That's mm -hmm. his story. That's the narrative we're invested in. Nothing else needs to be, talked about or focused on it's it's a two-hour movie now if it was a tv series and like clone wars and you had a bunch of episodes to tell that story sure you might want to delve into that territory a little bit it fleshes out the character it makes them a bit more developed right. lets you understand more about who they are and where they're coming from but then in a half hour tv show like clone wars that becomes the point of that episode mm -hmm. it becomes a very strong subplot of that episode like obi-wan and satine in clone wars their relationship is one where at one point you kind of have the feeling that they cared for each other, but obviously mm -hmm. their life passed. She became a she became a, a, a politician. He became a Jedi. It wasn't going to happen. But those become elements that layer the characters. But in a two hour movie, there's just no time for that. You mm -hmm. have to focus on what the important things are. Mm -hmm. So likewise, in the Flash, planting the seeds that the, that the police chief or whatever is a homosexual. If you're not going to go anywhere and do anything with it, it just comes off as very 
forced. But now here, I have a question. Uh, we, I, you know, I remember many of us, and there's still probably people even today that do this. They felt that way with the quote unquote token black person. Mm. You know, is this us doing that uh, today? What would be the difference? Um, you know what? I think I think that there's some credibility to the to the criticism of the token black character. Mm-hmm. I think that there's some legit criticism. If you include a character simply because you wish to have a black presence in your movie, that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But th- did it culturally down the road? You're saying did they plant? Did that plant the? Did that plant the? Plant seeds the seeds where we're used it? to it now. I I don't necessarily know that that's the case. I here's what I think. Mm-hmm. I think that talent. Talent is what makes you colorblind. Mm-hmm. If True. the actor is cast and they pull off a convincing performance, you don't really care. Mm-hmm. But if that person is inserted into that movie and the only reason that they're in that movie or the only reason they're in that story is to show diversity and they don't bring anything else to the table, then it becomes noticeably token. I see. When you were talking about that in the podcast, I was thinking the difference between like Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury versus Samuel L. Jackson as Mace Windu. You can almost see it in there. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Though, though, I will say this for Samuel L. Jackson. He desperately wanted to be in Star Wars. I he, don't blame him. Who doesn't? He, he begged Lucas to be in Star Wars. Originally, he said he just wanted to appear as a stormtrooper, which is what, ironically, Daniel Craig ended up doing. Right. <laughs> but, but he begged to be in Star Wars. And George Lucas, ever the businessman, at least in my opinion, ever the businessman, I agree with what Plinkett said. I believe that he cast Samuel L. Jackson in a prominent role because he wanted to get black audiences mm-hmm. to go see Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know? But now, do you, uh, here's the difference between casting Mace Windu, Samuel L. Jackson's Mace Windu, versus, say, um, Billy D. Williams as Lando Calrissian. Mm-hmm. Was that technically the same intention? Um, I, you know what? I think it was. But mm-hmm. to a degree. To a degree, I think not, it was. Not as I think much. it's because, it, they, at least with Billy D. Williams, they wrote the character. Right. He, he was a guy that knew Han from his past, so you kind of figure maybe he was a little, like, kind of a suave guy, a shady mm-hmm. guy, you know? Yeah. Like somebody and that's that what can, Billy D. Williams could pull off. Right, right, right mm-hmm. exactly. Well, and the thing is, when Billy D. Williams shows up, he's so charming, you immediately don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, he's so charming, and he becomes an integral part of the story. He fucks over Han, yep. he feels terrible about it, he joins the group. Like, he, he kind of transcends the token casting of the character where Samuel L. Jackson is unable to transcend that, but not due to any fault of his own because we know he's an accomplished actor. Yes. And he did it with Nick Fury in the Avengers. Not only did he play Nick Fury, he, he played Nick Fury in a convincing role. And other movies, Well, that's too. because he brought a little... Samuel L. Jackson is one of those actors who brings a little of himself right. into the role or that type that he plays. He right. brings a little of himself. He's, With Mace Windu, you couldn't really do that because no. he's like stoic monk. Well, he's stoic. He's stoic and he's a bad cast for a Jedi. Yeah, when it's a bad casting choice, that shines mm-hmm. a spotlight yeah, on I'll agree. Exactly, because Jedi are supposed to control their emotion and Samuel Jackson's greatest strength is his ability to emote on the screen. Me and my wife went and saw Tarzan. Loved it. We absolutely loved it. Samuel L. Jackson is the sidekick character in that movie. Is he? Yeah, yeah. But that movie is so rife with cultural oh, wow. cultural exploration that it doesn't stick out. But the difference, the, the, it's a post-Civil War movie. Like, he he left America in after the Civil War, and he actually talks about his experiences fighting for, for the Union in the Civil War and stuff mm. like that. And it's a very interesting movie and a very interesting character. But, like, he's so inter- entertaining and so enjoyable in the movie that it's like, 
even if it was a token casting, it doesn't matter. I don't think Samuel Jackson can be token cast anymore. When you cast Samuel Jackson in a movie, you're getting you're you're expected to get a great performance mm-hmm. out of it. Whereas, like, I think for Star Wars, I very much think Lucas was thinking, well, how can I expand the audience base of this movie? No, I don't think George Lucas definitely was. I don't think he was seeing it from a racist standpoint. I think he was seeing it from how do I reach a different audience? Mm, business standpoint. Exactly. From a business standpoint. That's but, all. But uh, you know, we're forgetting mm-hmm. that uh, Samuel Jackson actually did um, emote um, in Episode Three, though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> probably the most. The most. Probably the the. Oh come on! Death. A Sith Lord doesn't count. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, a Sith Lord walk, 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 walk. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> well, I think you called it, too, because, no, or was it Plinkett that called it with, like, it'll just fall off the green screen or something yeah, like that? Just yeah, re- we would have ran, but we ran out of green screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that just, like, it heightened my awareness of that whole thing where it's like, man, they just found out this shocking discovery, and it's like a Sith Lord, and then he just acts like he just found out that, like, his team lost the, the game on Sunday or something. It's like, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, we'll walk, deal with it. Well, walk with me. Yeah. Yeah, Satan's alive. Well, yeah. <laughs> let's walk we'll have to deal with that so we all agree that casting or not cast making sulu gay is not a bad thing in and of itself but it's more pandering we feel like it's pandering in this particular case yes i agree with that agree um the next topic of conversation i want to cover um i was recently playing castlevania lords of shadow now you might want to ask why no which one's lords of shadow lords of shadow Man. The the, three, the GBA ones. It's it's the uh, the the one. Oh, the PS the PS three one mm-hmm. and Xbox three sixty one. There, this game is a very divisive cast. I'm replay. I'm replaying a lot of old games right now. I uh, I, I played the PS two one and I'm just like, Mm-mm. yeah. Lament, well, there are two PS two ones. There's Lament of Innocence and there's Curse of Darkness. I, I think I did the first one and I was yeah. kind of like, eh. yeah. Lament. I want Lament, I want Metroidvania. At the time when it came out, Lament was. All right, mm-hmm. but I think people were like embracing it because it was Castlevania. The, yeah, really... Lament of Innocence is Star Trek Voyager. I'm watching it because it's on. Yeah, yep. there's, there's no other Star Trek right now. Curse there's no of... other Castlevania right now. I'll play this. I'm one of the few who actually liked Voyager, but mind you, I only liked it until later. I think this podcast is done. <laughs> I'm not going to like advocate it. I mean, by I mean, I actually saw DS9 after Voyager, and I was just like. Oh my yeah. God! DS Nine is like miles above anything. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> but Castlevania, Lords of Shadow is this divisive game for some reason. There are people that are just like, I can't stand it. I hate it. It's a God of War clone. This, that, and the other. I wouldn't call it that. I, you know, I was. I, it's the game engine. That's that was. That was very God of Warish. Yeah, I get. I get the criticism from cry-ish. the standpoint that. Any, yeah, I could see that. Anytime when you, anytime when you go to kill like a larger monster, it initiates a quick time event, mm-hmm. and I get that. I get those criticisms. I cannot stand quick time events in games. <laughs> the way I think that the one you didn't cast, like Shenmue. Well, no, that's a different thing entirely because it, that's its own that's its own game engine. You I thought hit. it was about for fighting Virtua Fighter figures. You got well for Daniel, it was. Yeah, for me, it totally would be too. I wish I would have played it because that, in my opinion, is one of the first open world games. Yeah, and I would have been totally with Daniel, like just like I'm just like running around bumping into people, just to see and what doing the it on do. the Dreamcast. Oh, I'd be looking for sailors. You bet your ass. <laughs> 
So um, you got hit in the head with the soccer ball, didn't you? <laughs> now, now I didn't play Shenmue, so can you please tell, explain to me the context of looking for sailors? Because I'm picturing something else in my head well, when you describe he, it that way. He's looking for sailors because they will lead him to the bad guy that he's trying to find. Mm. Yeah, his, fa- his his father was murdered by this fella, and by finding the uh, he went in a boat somewhere, I believe, to China, to, and then he. So if I find the sailors, I'll find the boat he was on, and so yeah, there is there are scenes in that game where you're walking around town, going, "Have you seen any sailors?" Although around? we've only ever played the game in Japanese with English subtitles because we've played the PAL version, mm-hmm. which I own for Dreamcast. My nephew played it in English, and the English one is the one that gets on Xbox, and that's the one that gets all the memes. You know, like, I'm looking for sailors memes, but um. With Castlevania, I've just found God of, like Lords of Shadow to be this very divisive game. Is it like God of War? I suppose in the sense that God of War is like Devil May Cry. But I know that other the, the two things that people criticize about that game are that number one, it uses a whip, which is like Kratos's sword chains, and number two, the quick time events to kill enemies. My first of all, I think that you can't Lord, criticize the first one because that's a token thing of Castlevania. Well, the whip. The yeah. whip. If I'm playing a Castlevania game and it's a Belmont, I want to use a whip. Yeah. Period. Right. How are you going to do a 3D fighting engine, use a whip, and not have it seem like God of War? It's impossible. You right. can't get away from it. Now, I know that people could say, like, well, Castlevania games, you know, you're walking 2D side-scrolling and you're whipping shit and you're killing it in one, two, or three hits. Okay, that's fine. But they were developing a next-gen Castlevania game at the time. You can't make a next-gen Castlevania game and have it be just walking in a straight line and whipping people. Yeah, that that's not how, and that's not a next-gen game. A next it wouldn't game, sound fun to me doing that, especially how next-gen games are, especially with the 3D engines. So. Right, exactly. If you're going to make a Castlevania game with the 3D engine, Lords of Shadow exceeded far beyond. It, it succeeded far beyond what I expected it to. My problems with the game are that I think it's paced very poorly, and that there's nothing that happens in it that's very interesting. Yeah. Until the end, when you fight Satan. Which is a fight that comes out of nowhere, and that's partly why I love it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I I remember feeling like there's not enough enemies in the game. Like there were points when I would just be walking around. Yeah. I'm like Castlevania is like there's zombies. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, for me the environments. There was too many repeated corridors. That was right. another thing I right. didn't like either. Right. But but to to raise point. The the constant frenetic pace was driven not only by the difficult platforming, but by the by the frequency with which enemies attacked you, and you don't mm-hmm. get that now in a three D fighting game like like Devil May Cry or God of War, where like the whole bread and butter of it is beating down the opponents. It's not going to be very interesting if all of your opponents die in two or three hits, yes, because then you're just going to have waves of enemies coming, and they're going to be super easy to kill. So the enemies then have it's to Dynasty be... Warriors, right? Exactly, with less enemies, and yep. that's boring too. Dynasty Warriors with a fuck ton of enemies is fine, because that game is all about you know stroking your ego and just killing as many people as you can. And that's fun. I heard the that they're making uh, the latest one is based on some like weird anime property. Yeah, that's out there. Something that's. Uh, Something that's, you know, not that many people know about Some it. Some guy with a rusty sword? I don't so, know. Yeah, man, fuck you, rusty sword. <laughs> yeah, um, speaking of which, for Opera Rainfall, I'm, uh, I'm doing the interview for that. I'm, I'm interviewing Corey Tecmo for that game. Mm-hmm. Who are you interviewing? The, the, the English localizers. Oh, cool. So I've already written up like 20 questions. Yeah, I hate to be a noob in this, but which, which anime are we talking about? Berserk. Berserk. Oh, okay. That's which right. Is, I did read about that. Which is my favorite thing ever. Yeah. Uh, it's been, I saw it centuries ago, and I barely remember it. Uh, it's just 
my favorite. Like mm-hmm. people have asked me if you could only have one nerd thing and you had to sacrifice if everything else had to be wiped off the planet, you can only keep one thing, what would be I say Berserk? They're like, really over Star Wars? I'm like, not even a question over Gundam. So that's a little tougher, but yes, I would sacrifice Gundam for Berserk. I love it that much. Yeah, I think <laughs> we figured that out last one of the more recent like what's it like for me it was Dragon Ball. For yeah. you it was Berserk, yeah. So uh what would um, yours be? Oh the, my geek thing? Does it have to be anime? It could be no. anything. Yeah, it could oh, be anything. Classic series Doctor Who. Okay. Okay. So no, that's Hands fine. down. Wow. So yeah, see, we all have that one thing that we know we love more than everything else. That one thing that we'd sacrifice everything else to keep. But uh, the pacing is the issue with Lords of Shadow. There's a lot of wide open areas where there's nothing happening. The puzzling isn't that interesting. And like or you said, repeated backgrounds, corridors, yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah and and that they change the lighting in this one. Yeah, but it, it leaves you confused as to where you are. Whereas mm. in an old Castlevania, you always knew where you were, right? Based on the backgrounds and the music, and you know, but exactly what just right. wasn't the case here, right? And and I think with three D games where you're trying to create photorealistic environments, when the environments are really large and the camera perspective changes. Um, you lose track of everything that's going on, and it all starts to look very samey. And not to mention the fact that, uh, at least in uh, the old, in the Metroidvania-ish type games, the backgrounds have stuff, chandeliers, they have tables. Yeah. It looks like you're running through a populated castle versus, well, back then, I don't know if they did any improvements from that point on, where you would have, you, you're just running through empty corridors that maybe has like a pond that fishmen jump out of. Yeah. Well, the, the Lords of Shadow is much more lush in its environment. It's much more detailed. And I actually think that's almost to its detriment mm. because with like Symphony of the Night or the old Castlevania games, the side scrolls, or even the, or even the, even the Egovania games mm. um, on the DS and the handhelds, like they're doing what they can with the limited resources that are available to them. So certain things are standing out. The level designers are like, okay, what are the things we want to stand out? We only have so much that we can work with in this area. What mm-hmm. are the things you want to stand out? Well, if we're in a library, what are the things that you have to see in a library? We have to see bookshelves. You know, if you're in a dining hall area or a, or a ballet or like, you know, like a banquet hall, what are the things we need to see? Well, we need to see like, you know, marble columns and we need to see chandeliers. Like, the color palette is more limited in, in a 2D game and the what the resources available are more limited so the level designers have to become more creative and highlight what are the things that make this area distinct and different. Whereas in a game like Lords of Shadow, when you're walking around like a destroyed castle, every shattered marble column looks like every other shattered marble column. Mm-hmm. It kind of in 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 an in an effort to establish an identity for the level, it loses its identity. It loses its distinctness and its appeal. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I think that the music of the old Castlevania games is like that memorable music that you're never, you're going to hear mm-hmm. Vampire Killer. And no matter what game you hear Vampire Killer in, it is going it to It brings it back. You're going to be like, yeah, I'm ready to fucking kill some vampires. <laughs> Vampire Killer. There are very few songs that will do that. Like Castlevania, the theme song to Double Dragon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that one would totally do that for me. So I, I think uh, the theme song from the first stage of Ninja Gaiden yeah. is one that does it for me. Like, it just takes me right back. Like, I'm right there, man. All I need to do is hear that music for 10 seconds, and I'm playing the game like an And ace. to bring it back? The uh the intro music with East Book One and Two. Oh yeah. As mm-hmm. soon as I would hear that, that that. Do, 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 do. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm back at Yorktown when I first experienced that. Yeah, really. Mario, that, Zelda, Hyrule Overworld. Oh, I, anything Legend of Zelda. That's one, one of the things I loved about Smash Brothers when I was just hearing the remixes of those music. When you get to like, you know, uh, like Brinstar or something yeah. like that. And you know, I'm just like, oh my God, yeah. you know. Yeah. In the and same tonality. Nobody remasters, nobody does arrangements of their music like Nintendo. They're yeah. like. They do great. Them and Square Enix, in my opinion, are like 1 and 1A for arrangements of their music. I like, would say that there are some that can't be. Uh, we, we're talking about East. Um, can you imagine somebody remastering that music? Like, that music can't. can't be done. No, that you, the whole sound. Well, first that, off, it was already done orchestrate, and it was there was really no rhythm to it. Yeah. It was very distinctive. These in these couple instruments, it was just the, it was the it was that the bass track sound, of the in the background. Sound, and, I've never heard that sound in mm-hmm. any game. Like think about that. That just the way that music. Well, there were three sounds. distinct sounds. There was the bum. There was the bass in the background. There was the. That could be like uh, like a wood whistle or something like that, but then that sound that dun dun dun, I couldn't identify I, that. That's not an identifiable instrument. It's, it's got to be some kind of synthesized. Yeah, you can't mm-hmm. repeat that. If somebody else tried to do that, like in any other instrument, I couldn't picture it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a synthesized sound, but that's mm-hmm. what I love about it. But like, now I've heard other versions of like you know, first steps towards wars. Here's my geekiness coming out for there. That's the uh, that's the first stage scene in East uh, Book One Two. That dun dun dun. dun I've heard remixes of that. That'll do it for me too. But you know that. But I could never picture the first one. Yeah, not that. Not that that opening. Not the opening, and then um, Alan Oppenheimer on top of that. You need (laughs) Alan Oppenheimer, otherwise it all falls apart. Exactly. That's one you couldn't remaster, but. Yeah, the Smash Brothers, Nintendo in general, they're yeah. pretty good at. Uh, I, Konami's good at that too. Yeah, I think. I oh, think, when they remade the Donkey Kong rap, oh, that was rapturous <laughs> to me. <laughs> I think that. I think that when you're With talking this coconut gun, it fires in spurts. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you're talking about uh, new arrangements and modernized arrangements of existing music, I think Castlevania is like the one to me that, like, every time they redo it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I say Konami in general, because I'm very familiar with the Gradius yeah. series, and they do that yep. in the Gradius series, too, and then that carries into Paradius. One shout-out I do want to do is OC Remix. They have this trilogy of Castlevania albums called Vampire Visions. You need to get it. I actually was very pleased with some of the stuff that OC Remix did. I haven't heard that name in forever. Yeah, but I was listening to some Silent Hill stuff they did. That was amazing. Go... If you like if you like the, the the Symphony of the Night soundtrack with its hard driving guitar beats and stuff like that, you're gonna love Vampire Visions. It's all it's like Lords of Thunder, Castlevania done by the Lords of Thunder people. Oh jeez, yeah. it's <laughs> fucking amazing. That's good. Now there are there is some chiptune stuff in there, and that's the weird thing when I'm listening to all this like this hard rock music, and then I hear like a chiptune mixed into the album. I get it; it's a tribute album, but it just feels out of place. It's like, man, get me back to the guitars. Yeah, really. You know? there, I don't want to shit on the arrangement. It's a very, it's an arrangement. I couldn't do it. I actually had two Japanese arrangements that were uh, Castlevania based, and they Dracula were all the, say what Dracula Battle. There's, I think uh, that might have been Dracula it. Battle and Dracula Battle Two are both just all. Oh, it was all electric, all electric guitar. Yes, Castle, yeah, it's Dracula uh, Battle. That okay. to me, like that, that series lends itself very well to that sound. Yeah. Which is weird because it's. Like well, a, I think I've played for you the. Uh, it's a it's an album by uh, a group called Vomitron, called No Nest for the Wicked. And it's oh, a, yeah. whole, a whole bunch of like um, Ness soundtrack, famous Ness did soundtrack. They, did they do Vampire Killer? Is that the one yeah. they did? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, well, it's, it opens with Contra. 
So the cool thing about the album is that each track, like each game, like the Contra track, it's the whole game. Oh, so they just take like and they just like and they just transition. They like they'll play like a minute and then they'll transition to the next level and they'll transition to the next level. So each track of the album, if it's like twelve tracks on the album, it's really like a hundred tracks because <laughs> you know he does the whole game and it's one guy. That's what's crazy yeah. about Vomitron. It's one wow. freaking guy plays every single instrument and then just you know mixes it and. You yeah. gotta have mad respect for that guy, and you've gotta buy that album if you like that music. Please don't steal music if you like it, and it's one guy doing it. No, really. Those mm-hmm. two conditions that the you have to buy it, man. Yeah. Agreed. Give, pay your respect. Yeah, I uh, I snatched that one up on iTunes, and I was like, mm-hmm. I I must have this. I mean, yeah. press X and pay your respects for Christ's <laughs> yeah, sake. Yeah, normally they're, they're they're very very cheap, but if you are, this is one of the things I did. There was one time that I was like really disgustingly strapped for cash. And at a time where I like couldn't do anything, I had to like watch every penny, and I couldn't do it. So one of the things I did to justify <clears throat> borrowing things mm. on the internet was I decided if I can't pay them, I will get them customers. Mm. And I started promoting that. And I would, I would make certain that I would actually tell a number of people what I can do. So Because if I can get them at two customers, that makes up for what I can do. Right, right. Yeah. They, uh, I remember the story about the guy that uh, went to uh, one of the shows – and uh, met the guys that uh, created Shovel Knight, mm-hmm. and he mm. gave them a $20 bill. And he's like, I pirated your game, and I'm sorry. Here's $20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's great. I remember a friend of mine one time offered me Shovel Knight. He's like, oh, I bought it off of GOG, and there's no DRM. You want it? And I'm like, ah, I really want to pay for this game. Yeah. And I, I don't have time to play it right now, and I really want to pay for this game. And, of course, years later, I ended up buying the Wii U version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. So uh, One thing I do want to bring up about Lords of Shadow, despite all its pacing issues, I've often maintained that the storyline for Lords of Shadow is the best version of the Castlevania storyline mm. because it keeps the focus on the Belmonts, right. which I think are the interesting family. Of course, right. if you don't know about Lords of Shadow, at the end of Lords of Shadow, Gabriel Belmont becomes Dracula. Mm. He rebels mm. against God and becomes Dracula. And the reason for that is because he feels – it's partly because he feels as though God betrayed him by not telling him everything he needed to know. And the other reason is because he actually absorbs the power of the Lords of Shadow as he goes through the game and defeats them, which is, of course, is a later Castlevania game staple. It's a Mega Man thing. You, know, like you absorb the power of the enemies that you defeat. Metroid does it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Metroid does that, but like you get powers as you go through the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah you find sure. them right. in Metroid. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the really cool thing about the Lords of Shadow storyline is that Gabriel is on a quest to defeat the Lords of Shadow because they are the reason why the world is all fucked up. Well, what he comes to discover is that the Lords of Shadow are the darker halves of the three original knights who established the order that he belongs to. Mm. And what happened is they wanted to ascend to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. They wanted to be by God. So when they ascended into the heaven, they could not take their impurities with them. So their impurities are what remain behind on this world. Those impurities became darker versions of them. Thus they became the Lords of Shadow. Hmm. So as Gabriel, but the thing is, if Gabriel kills one of the Lords of Shadow, he also kills the angelic version that went up to heaven because they're still tied to each other. And Gabriel's like, I don't believe you. So I'm going to kill you. So he kills them all and he finds out that, yes, in fact, it is true. So at the end, he gets, he rebels against God. And with all this dark power he's absorbed, he becomes Dracula. He becomes, he becomes the enemy of God. Hmm. Which, of course, is very much like the Coppola movie where it's like, you know, he renounces God and becomes his enemy and all that. Right. I think that's a really cool story, but it mm-hmm. gets even better. He didn't know that before he left his wife Marie to go on his mission, one of his missions, she was pregnant. He was gone for over a year. And 
some other knights from the order went to him, went to her and told her, we've shown you the future. We've shown you what he's going to become. You can't let him, you can't let him take your son. You have to give us Trevor. Mm-hmm. We have, you have to let us take care of Trevor. So, of course, she does so, and she never tells him about it, which is another thing that pisses him off because the order serves God. And it's like, you know, you let them take you let them take our son away from us. Mm. But he doesn't know about it until Trevor one day grows up and goes to Castle Dracula to kill Dracula. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, in the game, you beat Dracula, but then it cuts to a cinema where Dracula turns the tables and kills Trevor. And only when he kills Trevor does he realize, does Trevor tell him, you know, the last laugh is mine because you just killed your own son. Mm. You know, so the pain that you're going to feel is a result of your oversight. And may you let may you remember this forever, and let it temper your action. You hmm. know, well, Dracula's like, no, I'm not going to let them kill my son, and he turns him and makes him drink his blood, and then he puts him in a coffin. And many years later, he comes back as Alucard, hmm. and he says, I refuse to be like you, Father. I'm going to be your antithesis. I'm going to be your opposite. I'm going to be now. I'm no longer Trevor Belmont. I'm Alucard. Oh, that's but an interesting way. Before Trevor went off to kill Dracula. He had a son, too, named Simon. <laughs> and Dracula's forces kill everyone, and Simon is raised by these mountain people. So Simon's this, like, rugged barbarian. Yeah, know? I've seen, like, old pieces of artwork with him where he's wearing, like, the uh, the loincloth yeah. rather than, like, the uh, the medieval-looking clothes that you see some of the Belmonts wearing. He's right. in, like, a like, very loincloth and, like, no He's got, shirt like, this and... breastplate that's, like, a monster's face yeah, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. It's really cool. He's, like, this rugged barbarian. So in the scope of the game, Simon goes to kill Dracula, and he can't do it alone. So then Tre- Alucard jumps in, and father and son combine together to defeat Dracula, but of course you can't kill Dracula permanently. Right. So, so doesn't this contradict uh, Castlevania Three by any chance? Well, by the way, here's the thing: is Lords of Shadow is its own storyline. Mm-hmm. It's, okay. It's it's loosely based on. It's spiritually Castlevania, but it's not it's not part of the Castlevania the Konami. It's kind of like the Battlestar Galactica new series yes. versus the old. Yes, okay. it's it's its, it's own it. thing. It's a reboot. Okay. But what I like about that is it keeps the storyline within the Belmont family, which is, to me, what it's always been about. Belmont versus Dracula. Well, mm-hmm. now Lords of Shadow has a really cool reason for it being Belmont versus Dracula. Right. Because Gabriel is, like, the father of the Belmont clan. And it's, like, you know, it's not just killing a monster. It's cleaning up the bloodline mm-hmm. and erasing the stain of evil. That, to me, is a much more interesting storyline than what they do in the classic Castlevania games, which has a fine storyline for what it is. But I think that the Lords of Shadow storyline is just vastly superior. It's more intricate. It's more interesting. And spiritually, it keeps it in the Belmont family. And I mm-hmm. think that's very cool. Yeah. So, so this is going to be the end of this episode because we talked so long that we got to split this into multiple episodes. So this will be the end of part one. And we'll catch everybody in two weeks with part two. Maybe we'll even switch it up and do one week. I don't know what we'll do. We'll do something crazy, but we'll get the next episode out to you so you don't have to wait. There'll be probably some Gen Con fun in between somewhere. The rest of the the Mike Vallis fun. Extravaganza. Yeah. Valstravaganza. Valstravaganza. Yeah, I even said half the stories that I would love to say about EGM. I'm sure it's crazy ones. Yeah, we. Oh, yeah, we'll. Yeah, we'll. We'll. We'll do another one. We'll. Of these. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, we'll get Good. to it. Well, of course, I have to owe you pizza money. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's the only reason we'll bring you back. That's right. <laughs> so uh, until the part two happens, I'm Ray Price. 
I'm Tom Tolios. And I'm Mike Vallis. We'll catch you next time.